Let's begin. Welcome to Edge Group Podcast, episode number, what, what is it, Nabil? Seven. Seven. Wow. We're almost, we're almost at 10. Uh, and we have a really special guest today. Uh, usually we have, we have racers. Uh, and today we have someone that not only is a racer, but it is also an instructor and, and a motor journalist. Uh, and if you're, if you ever picked up a magazine, a sport writer magazine, or, or any of the magazines, you probably read what he wrote. Um, if you ever did a uh, any track day, you you probably encounter one of one of his instructors or or even him. Uh, we have the world famous Nick Einach. Good to join you guys. I appreciate y'all doing this. It's a lot of fun to talk about riding techniques for me, and I think we got a lot of a lot of good messages out there. Good, good, and and it's it's great to have you, and, and thank you for uh, agreeing to be in our you know in our little little podcast. Uh, so for people that don't know you, uh, let me just start with your bio. Uh, you are era number one plate holder at Willow Springs Raceway, nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety. Uh, and and I you know I think we all have a soft spot for Willow Springs, mm-hmm. especially, especially turn nine. Thank you for memories. Yeah, uh, we were a Grand Nationals uh, final champion in three classes in '89. AMA uh, two fifty GP number two and number three plate holder in 1991, 1993, 1994, and 1995. Uh, AMA Super Teams uh, number one plate with two brothers racing. Uh, 1993, Arian Racing, 1994, number two plate with Dutchman Racing, 1995. MA Drag Bike, uh, Pro Street World Finals, Finals winner at Valtosa, Georgia, 2008. How do you, how do you switch to drag racing? <laughs> well, that was a, a fun one. You know, there's a guy named Kent Stotts and he and his son, Frankie, are world-renowned racing a CBR 1000 drag racing. And it's a, it's a class that no wheelie bar, uh, extended swing arm, turbocharge. And they ran, uh, we run seven O's at 199, 200, probably faster now. But Kent and I were friends from some magazine stories that we used to do called Superbikes from Hell. Were you guys around during Superbikes from Hell and uh, UFO and limited flying objects? We basically invited tuners to build the, the wildest street bikes they could build, had to be street legal. And, you know, went, up, went over 200 miles an hour um, all the time. So Kent was one of those guys, uh, guy along with a guy named Bill Hahn. And when Kent started drag racing with his son, he called me and, and said, come ride this thing as a journalist. And the first time I showed up, I think in 07, uh, I got in the semifinals and, you know, I got beat in the semifinals. And so he invited me back in 09 and I won it at the world finals. And it was, it was such a big deal because here's a road racer, you know, some old road racer comes out of, out of nowhere and, and beats those guys and it was pretty fascinating and and pretty interesting and one of those situations where i'm with the best in the world and i just did what he told me to do and what do you know it worked so that's how that happened so now i'm a so i'm a drag racer all of a sudden but you know now that i say that i did all the drag racing testing at the magazines for all those years too so i was very comfortable with drag strip i love drag strip i go to one of my own stuff so that was a really neat deal though a lot of fun very nice uh also also, MA 600 Supersport podium finisher, uh, 
Arma winner on TZ750, NSR250, GPZ550, KZ1000. I think I read that article of you talking about racing at 60, and I think it was with the GPZ. Right, right. And see, that's where I, I know Kerry Andrew, and I'm really glad you did a podcast with him. He's quite an amazing person. And, uh, you know, his the Z1 that he races now uh, was sold to a collector back in the day after he was done racing it in AMA Superbike. And he and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, he did all the magazine teardowns for me at Sport Rider, and he just, he'd always show up. He, I mean, he's just a great guy. And so I called him up a few years ago and I said, Kerry, you know, we need to go racing Arma. <laughs> it's what we need to do. You know, we're a little bit older now. We should go racing Arma. And uh, he's like, huh. You know, we talked about it. And uh, next thing you know, he has contacted the collector of his, of his Z1 and he repurchased it and redid it. And now we go racing Arma together and, and have a great time. And we only race once or twice a year, but it's really fun. And the, and the GPZ that I race is a little 550 that was owned by my friend, uh, now passed. Um, and you know, he, he, his wife has allowed me to race. So it's quite a neat deal for me to be able to race that GPZ. And of course, Kerry's gone through it. And as you know, gal, he, Kerry, Kerry does some things to motors that he has sworn me to secrecy about. So there's things that Kerry Andrew does that are, that put his stuff ahead of everybody else. And, uh, I can't, I cannot, literally cannot write about it. I can't say it, but that GPZ is a good runner. So I, I'll end and say that I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> good. The, yeah. the, the first time that I, I got to know what Kerry can do to an engine is is when I had my uh, Jixer K6 and the clutch was hopping uh, because it was a slipper clutch and I couldn't, I couldn't really get a clean start and, and I brought it to him and he, he drilled a few holes in there and... Uh, it was fine. That was before he he built it, uh, and I, I remember that that KZ one thousand. It was just a chassis, and he told me, "Hey, I just bought my old bike back, and uh, the the carburetors uh, were were I think like four grand. He got them in Japan, and it was yeah. it's an entire story. He's got he's got like a super secret uh, carbon fiber tank in there, and yeah. I don't want to talk a little. You know, I don't want to talk about it because. You remember what happened a few weeks ago with the disqualification and and uh, complaint yeah. that was launched against them. Uh, so let, let's let let's not get into it too much. Yeah. Uh, you're also FIM certified, uh, runs over 200 miles per hour, and you traveled at a speed of 234 miles per hour. Did you yeah, see, where'd you find that bio? That's all my uh, yeah. That's all my racing stuff. Did you did you see the curvature of the Earth traveling in that speed? <laughs> you know, you don't you don't see a whole lot at that speed. We were at the Honda Proving Center, and that's up in uh, up uh, north of Willow Springs, and it's in the middle of nowhere. And there's a seven mile oval, so there's a seven mile oval with two and a half mile an hour, two and a half mile corners and one mile straights, and so. We would launch here in, say, turn two if it was a dirt track. We'd launch in turn two. We'd have all our trucks and buses there at turn two. We'd run down the straightaway into the curve and go through the curve, turns three and four of a dirt track, at, you know, 185 miles an hour. And it was kind of crazy. And then we'd come off the turn in, say, fourth gear, because those were five speeds back then, most of them, come off the gear in, in fourth gear and accelerate. And the thing, you know, we were – this is 1996 – 99 ish and we were on tires that weren't 
rated for those speeds. No one had gone that fast, uh, certainly on street legal motorcycles. And so we'd come off the corner and you could not bail out. You couldn't, you couldn't say, oh, this is not going well. I'm going to stop. There's, you know, so once, once you were in it, you were in it. And we'd come off the corner and go to full power. Almost everything was turbocharged or supercharged, some nitrous, but not too many, and some norm- normally aspirated, but almost everything was turbocharged. And the thing would start to wobble, I mean, start to longitudinally weave. And so you'd scoot back and try to calm the airflow. If that was worse, you'd scoot forward and calm the airflow. And by the time you did a couple of those moves, you were through the time lights. It was that fast. The things were that fast. And um, it was one of those things where each bike you rode was kind of special, like, well, very special. And like the tuner would say, okay, Nick, um, shifted at this RPM. Don't touch that button. Make sure you click the switch when you're in fourth gear, but not in third gear. <laughs> it was one of those deals where <laughs> you're mentally overwhelmed. And then the speed was, was crazy. I'm, I can remember coming off the corner and it's wobbling and I'm not wobbling. It's, it's weaving and I'm moving around. I'm checking. I'm looking at the tachometer. I'm shifting at the right moment, but not with the clutch on this one. And this one shifts this way. And I, and I look one more time, check coolant temperature. I'd change my tuck and I'd be through the lights. And it, it was, it was crazy days. And, uh, that's, that's really one of the things that Kerry participated in along with Kent Stotts, who I just mentioned. So a lot of big time, you know, Tom Houseworth, a lot of big time tuners were there uh, trying to go 200 miles an hour. And that came because back in the day, the mid nineties, some of the manufacturers were saying, yeah, this bike goes 200. And so we started to call their bluff and we'd go up to, you know, our high, our high desert proving center to run top speed with a radar gun and nothing was going 200. I mean, Yoshimura would show up with, with big Papa, he went 185. And these guys, Vance and Hines would show up with their thing at 176, big numbers, but nothing at 200. And so we were like, huh. And this little guy named Terry Kaiser shows up, m- you know, multi-time drag racing national champion legend. And Terry Kaiser shows up with a ZX 11 turbo. Um, and we go 215 on it. In our, on our high desert proving facility, which was a, you know, a, a, a straight road in the high desert. We went 215 on that bike. And that's what started everything. UFO, tour bike from hell. All of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, we can do this. So let's see how much we can do. And that's what launched that high, high speed stuff. I remember reading about those things when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to days. put things in perspective, right? Uh, many, many, many years later, Prototype bikes, MotoGP, Jorge Martin broke the speed record at 226 miles an hour. You guys were doing this a long time ago on production, you know, modified, but production bikes. Yeah. And, uh, the, of course, they do it lap after lap on uh, normally aspirated bikes, which is obviously hugely impressive. But And they sit up on the brakes, too, which is kind of crazy. But we were we were running, you know, flat out for about, I would say, a mile and a quarter, maybe. Uh, so we didn't have time to really cook things, but you're right. It was, it was quite a time. And it's funny how many people still comment to me, especially people my age um, would, will still say, man, that those were the coolest days when you guys were doing that because we, we rarely took a bike home that was running. Every tuner there showed up because the top speed was the last thing we would do a, a street ride, drag strip, a road race lapping, and then top speed. But the top speed was the real thing. Um, for most people. And so every tuner there would continue to add boost, add nitrous, lean the bike out, change gearing to, to try to go faster. And 
I don't think we ever took a, a running bike home. Very rarely we took a running bike home because everybody just kept tweaking it. So we burnt one gr- bike to the ground. My friend Lance Holst uh, rode through the traps on Tom Hauser's bike. It popped, backfired to the carburetors, caught the thing on fire, burned to the ground, uh, blew shit up, went crazy. But we were the last year we did it. I don't remember the year. Last year we did it, the invitation to these six or eight tuners that we invited every year, different people, the, the invitation said, don't show up if your shit won't go 200 miles an hour. <laughs> that was the <laughs> invitation because that was the level we were. Everything was going 200. So 200 was the, was the basement. And uh, that, was, that was pretty great times. It That's was amazing. There's something sexy about top speed, right? Even when I tell people who don't ride, uh, they, they go, you race motorcycles? I go, yes. I say, how fast can you go? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, and so funny I have to explain that, you know, there's no long straights and there are yeah. turns and it's lap time that matters. It, it does not even register. They're like, you go over 200. What's the fastest yeah, you've ever done? That's what they want to hear. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I, I don't know any road racer that knows what mile an hour they are going at any point on the racetrack. None of us care. We say it's the top of fourth, the middle of third. You know, that's how we that's how we go about it. Uh, and, and it's, it, it's fairly interesting, but the, the top speed stuff, you know, once you get into it and I'm, I'm not into it, like I'm sure some of your readers and even maybe you guys, but you know, once you go to the Maxton mile and you start running some of these top speed events, Bonneville for sure, El Mirage, it, it becomes an incredible science. And uh, it's fun to speak to some people that really, that are really truly into it. Um, and I've got some friends that really are, and it's fun to talk to them about the little things that, that we do. Uh, on the bike to make it go better. And it becomes a science and, and much, much more than horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, case in point, this KTM, right? I've, I've uh, first time I get on it, it, it took me, I went from an R6 to an MV. It took me about, I don't know, 10 track days to get back to the speed where I was on the R6. Right. And then I get the KTM and I beat my personal best the first day on it. Just because it's more nimble and it, it rides better and it's better set up. I mean, it was set up not for me. It was just set up stock, yeah. and everything was still the way they they built it. Not one tweak, and you get the bike running correctly. It's not just engine. Yeah, for sure. yeah. We, we're in a golden age. You know, we can buy these leader bikes uh, and have them as light, almost as light as six hundreds. Same wheelbase, uh, handling really wonderfully. If I if I have a rider, a friend of mine who rides well, is an expert level rider, and they say, I'm looking for a new 600, I will tell them, before you buy that, ride one of the new leader bikes, ride an RSV4, the KTM, ride the R1, ride those big bikes, because in the old days, they were they, they were pretty heavy, hard to manage, um, no TC, but nowadays, they are really beautiful, and I'm, you know, it's it's refreshing to hear you jump on your RC8 and go quicker than you've been, that's, that's a good, I mean, that's why we buy these things, to go quicker. And, and look cool right. doing it. Boom. <laughs> well, uh, if, if you can't go fast, you know, look cool at least right. doing it. <laughs> uh, you co-founded the Utah, Utah Sport Bike Association, <laughs> right? Is that still around? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're digging up some old stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that I did. Yeah, we were, uh, Don DeBusk and I, he's passed. Now, uh, boy, Sean, boy, Scott, uh, Mitch Bame. We would all live in Salt Lake City. We all lived in Salt Lake City in college, high school, college, and we all bought sport bikes. And in fact, we all bought sport bikes. We tore them down every winter. You know, we, all of our frames were red, painted, painted red um, by Walt Allen. 
it was crazy. So anyway, we, there, there's a bunch of us running around on sport bikes up and down the canyons, having the time of our lives. And so Don DeBusk and I started this little USBA, Utah Sport Bike Association, just for fun. You know, made sweatshirts with the little logos on it and everything. And uh, and sure enough, it took off and uh, it's still going. It's still going strong. There's a race this weekend, as a matter of fact, at uh, UMC Old Miller. So yeah, I did. I founded that, but it was just it's just a bunch of us guys cruising around having fun and we wanted to go and practice in parking lots and, and stuff like that. So that's, that's how it happened. Good. Good fact. <laughs> uh, you were also the lead instructor for 12 years for fast Freddy and his school. Uh, how did that happen? Well, I was, uh, well, this was 96, 97. And I was, uh, I was asked to run a school at Willow Springs uh, on Friday before the races. And this was back when there were, you know, 1,200 people show up at these races, 1,200 racers would show up at these races. So they were getting a lot of new people coming in, and uh, fast track riders asked me to, to run the school. And so, of course, what I did was I hired uh, all my fast friends, my you know class champions, guys like Kent Kunitsugu, Lance Holst, Jason Black, Steve Michaelis, Andy Milton, number one plate holder a bunch of times. I, ha I hired all those people to teach the school, uh, and it went really well. And that 97, I was racing 250s at Las Vegas uh, Raceway, and I'd written a letter to Honda saying that, hey, I'm, I'm running the school. Uh, I, I would love to run a school for you. And uh, Honda wrote back and said, well, thank you, but we've got one guy ahead of you. You know, in line ahead of you. And this, of course, was Freddie Spencer. And so at the Las Vegas race, uh, they announced the Freddie Spencer Riding School would be at Las Vegas. And Honda, you know, introduced us. And Honda had told me, you get your resume uh, to Freddie as soon as you can. So I wrote my resume uh, to send it to Freddie. And this was just, you know, three or four days after the announcement, he got my resume. And it was really a combination of, of, two people that were totally into it, but from different sides of the track. I was, I was a street rider who did some racing and, and did okay at nationals, but nothing like Freddie, you know, world champion and everything else. So uh, it just was a great combination. I was a writer, which helped a lot because I could help with write curriculums and, and putting the program together is kind of a fascinating deal because the information there's, there's really not much new writing technique information but there is definitely a secret to the way it's put together, you know, the order it's in and that, that we really tweaked on that. And one of the things that Freddie insisted upon, and you know, I thank God he did is trail breaking. He really wanted to be, have trail breaking in the program, trailing brake pressure into the corner, uh, all the smoothness and all the body position, all that stuff that was all in the ballpark. But the fact that he wanted to teach trail breaking was, was huge. And that, that was, I was one of the things I was super happy with. So that's how Freddie Spencer happened. And then we started doing schools and uh, he and I became friends. And over the years, you know, hung out with each other, visited each other, each other's homes. And I just reconnected with him. And he's going to be coming to four schools, four champions riding schools this winter. So he'll be to a couple of our California schools and our homestead school and just come and hang out and be Freddie Spencer. Very nice. Yeah. Excited. Yeah. Speaking of, trail breaking the thing that kind of helped me and, it, and it's not by all means it's not a good proper riding technique is i never i was too always too afraid to trail break until i got a bike with an abs and it wouldn't it wouldn't stop 
right? The ABS would just kick in, so I had no choice but to trail break. And, and I kind of, you know, trusted the ABS not to lock it because it was too loose anyway. And that, that's how I started trail breaking. Well, just, just I had no it, choice. It, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, if you think about it, Gal, if you, if you, if you go to the brakes and you can't get the bike stopped, you'll be forced to use your brakes at lean angle. And this is what we're really pushing on. And you probably see it on our social media, certainly in Champ U, this new online program we've come out in, is that we, we, we should be comfortable trailing brake pressure into the corner. And simply put, as we add lean angle percentages, we give away braking percentages. If we're holding our lean angle, we can hold our brake pressure. And of course, that becomes a huge thing uh, because as you slow your motorcycle at a given lean angle, your radius tightens. And that's, that is really what starts to save your ass. So the fact that you couldn't get the bike slowed in a straight line forced you to trail brake. But now you are, I'm sure you're a believer, even though we've never spoken about this, right? Yeah. 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 And, and I, I try to put as much weight as I can on the front tire when I do it. Just I just move forward, yeah, uh, and just just a smooth transition from the from the brake all the way to the apex almost, and then smooth through the gas. Yeah. Uh, so it, it kind of forces you when a motorcycle doesn't want to do what you want it to do, and you start riding past the damn electronics, uh, then then you you kind of develop better riding habits, I think. Well, you can be forced into it, and so many of these uh, racers take ABS off their bikes. Or certainly turn it down to the to the lightest scale. Just just for everybody's listening out there, we run ABS on all of our school bikes, and of course you you know students have seen how fast the instructors go on stock Yamahas on a Dunlop Q3 Plus, and very rarely will we get into front ABS. Quite frequently rear, of course, because rear's off the ground so much. But very rarely we'll get into front ABS. So everybody out who out there who is struggling with ABS, um, if if your initial brake pressure is too quick, you'll trigger ABS before the tire gets loaded. If the ABS triggers late in the braking zone, that just means it's working as your tire nears lockup. But what, what, what we believe happens is people put a very sticky tire, let's say front, a very sticky front tire on their bikes, and the ABS setting is for a stock tire. And all of a sudden, the pressure that the front will accept is not in the, in the computer. So that's why a lot of people will pull the ABS uh, fuse just be cautious that you don't pull the ABS fuse and take the TC fuse and take the TC out of it as well. I mean, just just figure that out. But very few racers use ABS. Okay. Yeah. My my, my next bike is not going to have ABS. So. Yeah. Yeah. Where is yeah. it on well, bikes? Yeah. Uh, Gal's secret trick about adding weight to the front is he adds it to his waistline. Ah. And then he moves his body forward. And somebody needs to explain to him that this is not the way. But. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, he wasn't clear on that then. Look, look yeah. I'm, 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 like, yeah. I'm like an athlete, only a very bad athlete. So yeah. I, I gain weight during the wintertime and, and then I, I drop it before the first track day. But Kerry's been building that bike for so long that I just right. I kept adding weight and adding weight and I think I'm at I'm at 220 now so I, this I, is Carrie's fault yeah this it's is, really Carrie's yeah. fault <laughs> yeah. well it, it's not the know, Vegas it's not the Vegas buffets that's for sure yeah uh, I when when someone says their weight I always think about Anthony Gobert you know he said I'm gonna see how fat I can get and still beat all the Americans that's <laughs> he had said that quite famously so, but that idea of weight forward is such a big thing. And, you know, we can put weight forward by rolling off the throttle. That does put weight forward, but uh, adding brake pressure, you know, brake pressure, front brake controls speed for sure. And that's what everybody thinks. I need the brakes because I'm 
for speed control, but it also controls steering geometry. You can, you can more finely control your fork travel with the brake pressure rather than rolling off. And the third thing it controls is that front tire contact patch. So um, something for, for riders who have crashed off the front, lost the front, and they think automatically, they think I, I use too much brakes at too much lean angle. But I'll bet you the majority of amateur riders are off the front brake too quickly. They unload the front, the fork rebounds, makes a contact patch fall, small, and they fall off the front because they let go of the brakes too quickly. So everybody out there listening to this um, realize that how you let go of brake pressure on the front is how the fork rebounds. You snap off that brake, the fork rebounds quickly, contact patch gets small. And this has helped so many of our students who come into the school saying, you know what, I, I keep crashing off the front. And they always think they've overloaded it. And what we will, what we'll show them as we go through the school is that it's rarely the amount of brake pressure that crashes off the front. It's almost always the, the, the abruptness of the brake pressure or the abruptness of the lean angle. They've got the brakes on and they flick some, some lean angle or they've got lean angle and they grab the brakes and they fall off an overloaded front. The most common way to fall off the front from our op opinion and experience is getting into the corner and snapping off the brake and unloading and falling down. That, that is definitely 99% of cold tire crashes. People come in without the front loaded on a cold tire and fall down. Because now all of a sudden, the small contact patch that they've created by letting go of the brakes is cold and they're down. Um, yeah. I think Eric Bostrom, when so we interviewed him and, and he said, you got to teach the rider how to make grip. If you, if you have them understand how to yeah. make grip, you'll, you'll go much faster. Yeah. Well, one of the issues for people trail braking is they don't come into the corner with enough speed. So they get all their braking done before they tip in the bike. And actually some schools started teaching this, at least at the lower levels, to keep the, the rider safe and it's a bad habit to brake. What's a good advice for someone to just increase their speed so they can start actually using trail braking? Nabil, that's a great point. And we have this all the time. And, and even in our own riding, even in your riding, my instructor's riding and the instructors are you know, expert level, national level riders will overbreak for a corner uh, on a new track, especially. So what we'll teach uh, and, and what we would have your uh, listeners do two things. One, go to the brakes at the same spot where you're nervous, because that's what we teach. And that's what we believe that riders do. We go to the brakes when we're nervous about making the corner and we'll deal mostly with front brake. So you go to the brakes where you're nervous, but go to them so much lighter. And we get people saying out loud, lighter, longer. So go to the brakes where you're like, man, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about this corner, but go to them lighter so you'll be forced to use them longer. That's the one number one thing we'll do is lighter, longer, and all of a sudden you get into the corner uh, and you get your bike to the slowest point in the corner. That's a huge part of our school, the slowest point. Where does the bike need to be going the minimum mile an hour at the lean angle you choose? That's the slowest point. If you can get to that slowest point with your brakes on, you'll more repeatedly hit that point, and that, that's the secret to the incredible uh, consistency you see at the top level is they get the bike in on a low line, outside line, passing line, full tank of fuel, worn out tires, no fuel. And they run the same exact lap time because they get the bike to the slowest part of the corner with the brakes on. And for amateur newer riders, we'll teach them to go to the brakes lighter. So they've got to use them longer. The second thing is, and this is, I think, especially for street riders where we are, uh, and I street ride daily with my wife, my friends, we street love the street ride. Um, the, because we're limited by speed limits and, and also common sense, you know, if, if, if you're going quick on the street, 
it will hurt so badly when there's truly a surprise because you won't be able to recover. So we really do push for that 30% margin of safety on the street. If you're approaching a corner that is, let's say, a 45 mile an hour corner at your lean angle, and you're approaching it at 55 miles an hour, which is the speed limit, we would, we would ask our students to carry that 55 mile an hour longer to the corner, longer towards the corner. So when they close the throttle, they cannot make the corner just with closed throttle. They need a little bit of brake pressure. And all of a sudden, they'll start to realize, boy, I'll just carry my speed, my 55 mile an hour speed longer, close the throttle later, so I've got to brake past the tip in. And if, if, um, if everybody will think about the, the, true, say, the true solution to the problems we're having in corners, and that's the number one place that motorcycle riders are dying, all by themselves in corners, intersection corners, back road corners, corners. If they, if riders will leave your brake light on, pass the tip in. So light up your brake light because you're nervous and leave that brake light on, pass the tip in, turn with your brakes on. Riders, it's something as simple as that. All of a sudden, you're controlling your speed, geometry, and contact patch into the corner, and your life changes like that. And if you think to yourself, you're sitting there going, man, I don't think I can do that. You're doing it in your car already. We, you, we, we watch this all the time. We're seeing grandma in the minivan trailing brake pressure into the right-hand turn in our freeway. We see drivers coming into the freeway on-ramp and trailing brake pressure with as they add steering wheel angle. So you're already doing it. You already have the feel for it. And we're asking you to leave the brake light on, pass the tip in, and all of a sudden you're into the corner with your geometry controlled and your contact patch. So, and the last thought on this, we're, we're, okay, we're saying go to the brakes lighter so you can use them longer, number one. Number two, hold your speed a little bit longer so you got to use the brakes later to make the corner. And the, the overall idea here, and this is what I would love your readers to try, because we can solve our safety issues with, with some of these simple things, is you're going towards a corner you've never seen before. You go to the brake because you're nervous. You tip into the corner with your brake on, and you get in the corner too slowly, and you realize, I'm not hurt. You, you rarely ever get hurt entering the corner too slowly. Next weekend, next lap, next month, you realize this back corner's faster. I can brake lighter. I can brake later, or maybe I don't need the brakes in this corner. But if you'll enter the corner with your brakes on and get in too slowly, you're not hurt. That's and a good point. I, I would do anything Eric Bostrom says. That dude, national champion, right? Those are the kind of people, when Eric Bostrom says riders need to learn to create grip, it's because he doesn't roll off and hope his front tire is loaded. Eric Bostrom, national champion, rolls off and loads the front with that brake. And that's what separates that's what separates those guys from the people that are finished fifth and sixth and seventh. They're not using their brakes in places Eric is. They're off the brakes before Eric. Eric leaves that thing loaded and gets the bike pointed, all those things. That, that and uh, they're a little bit bigger than us in some areas. Yes, that's a, that's a big thing too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he had a really cool course. Um, now they sold the house, but it was a dirt track. Yeah. Um, kind of a flat dirt track. And uh, he would put knobbies on, on like 125s, knobbies in the front, slicks in the rear, or street tires in the rear, and, and wet the, you know, the grounds. And then you had to basically trail brake and you had to accelerate out of the corner with almost no, no grip. You had a lot of grip on the front. Yeah. So he taught you how to trail brake and control the bike. And then coming out was like a, uh, a show. Yes. So That's very cool. Yeah. He, those guys are great guys. And we, we go dirt bike riding here in Colorado. My wife's on an XT250 trail braking everywhere. And, and it's, 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 she's not trail braking 
because I said so or because Freddie or anybody, she's trail breaking because she wants to control those things in the corner. And, you know, when you're on unknown roads and you're trail breaking in the corner, all of a sudden the emergencies are so reduced. So it's a big thing. I, I'd like to make sure riders, riders that are hearing me realize I don't believe it's optional. I don't believe you can trail break or not trail break. In corners you break for, leave your brake light on, pass the tip in. And if you ever go riding with me and, and you're behind me, you'll see that brake light on into the corners, not just for speed, but because I want to get my brake pads against my brake rotors. I want to have my front loaded. I want to have my brakes in place in case things go wrong. And, you know, quarter Titans, there's an elk standing there, you know, pick your excuse. And all of a sudden you've got that brake loaded. And this is what we're fighting so much is getting riders to get the, get out of the idea of letting go of the brakes before they turn. Nope. Leave your brakes on, tip in with the brakes on. And as you all, as you two know, it's only going to be two or three percent of brake pressure. It's not going to be these huge brake pressures. It's just leaving the brake light on past tip in. You're already doing it in your car. We're saying the best riders in the world do it on their bikes. Yeah. And, and wings also help. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Uh, How about rear brake? A lot of people hesitate using rear brake in corners. Some people are for it. A lot of people are for it. Yeah. What do you think? Well, you're, you're seeing a huge deal with rear brake in Grand Prix, uh, certainly in Moto America. Uh, Kyle Wyman, one of our senior instructors, runs a thumb brake. Uh, you'll see Grand Prix bikes. Are we on? Are we going to be on film or just voice? Uh, film as well. Okay, good. So I'm making all these hands. Uh, as long as okay. Nabil edits the video, because I'm still waiting for like two... <laughs> Two videos well, prior. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't, I, I don't carry the weight, but if we're on a film, you'll go to a, you'll see a Grand Prix bike and you'll see two levers on the left-hand side. Uh, this lever here is the clutch. They only let go of that one time during a race. This lever here is the rear brake. They put a rear brake, scooter rear brake on Grand, a lot of Grand Prix bikes. Uh, you'll see, uh, I know when uh, Garrett Gerloff won at NJMP, I watched him use the rear brake in 3B. Uh, all these guys are playing with it. So it's, it's definitely part of the deal. And as you all, as you two know, doing track days, you know, what, what would you do at some point? What would you do to find two more seconds? You know, if you go two seconds a lot quicker, what would you do? Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of racers would, uh, you know, sell the house to find two seconds because two seconds would put them on pole. Uh, even a second would put them on pole in Grand Prix. You could be on the fourth row and be a second off in Grand Prix and, So they are really looking for these little ways to find speed and rear brake becomes that small way to, to find speed. The times you don't want to use it are when the front brake is on heavy and that of course unloads the rear and it's off the ground. If the rear tire is off the ground, there's no rear brake available. It locks, it gets to be a problem. But if the rear tire is on the ground, there's rear brake available. And so for instance, three, uh, 10 B and at NJMP. And I know there's a lot of, listeners out there that have been to New Jersey Motorsports Park, 10B would be a great place to play with that rear brake. Because remember, a slowing motorcycle tightens its radius at the same lean angle. So sneak on, close the throttle, sneak on a little bit of rear brake, and the bike slows and turns uh, very, very well. Uh, the In the overall percentages, we say at the school that front brake on a sport bike, short road racer sport bike, 97% the duty of stopping slowing. The rear brake is 3%. But at some point in your life, 3% becomes a big thing. And it could be this weekend. It could be you load up, uh, you, you know, you load up and you got your son or daughter on the back. You come into a downhill corner that tightens. You've got the front brake on. You're a lot of leaning and you can sneak on that rear brake. And that whole bike slows better and turns. All of a sudden, you stay in your lane because you've practiced one or two or 3% rear 
a rear brake and a slowing motorcycle tightens its radius. So the rear brake's a big thing for us. We leave it alone until day two because it's not it's not a huge priority, but at some point, you know, downhill right-hander corner tightening in the rain, not a lot of grip, and you got front and rear brake available, it's a, it's a huge deal. It's one of those things that are so complicated, at least for me to comprehend, that when I, I watched a video that Silvan Guintoli put on YouTube about when he's using it, and I was like, yeah, it's not for me. I remember, you know, Dewan was using it. He, he was the, the first guy that put it on, on the handlebar because he messed up his ankle. Um, and then Kevin Schwan said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not touching the rear brake. And I was like, yeah. yeah. I, I want to be as fast as Kevin Schwantz, so I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna touch it. And it's one of those things that I, I never went back to because it's just too yeah. much on my brain. Yeah. It's overload, and I think Sylvain said that he never touched it to win the Superbike World Championship, yeah. and then couldn't couldn't get around well enough on GP bike without it. So everybody listen out there, just as long as you have it in your toolbox, as long as you play with it. And what what happens is, you know, if we run off the track. Uh, into the grass. If we've got front and rear brake available, we stop the bike better. If you run wide into a parking lot or someplace you can brake and you got front and rear brake available, it's a big thing. We use it for a couple other reasons, and I'll, I'll, I'll refer to those. One of them is the traction monitor. If you know how your rear tire feels when it locks up on dry pavement when it's hot, you can now begin to lock your rear tire uh, in a straight line to determine how hot your rear tire is. And this happens all the time. We'll, we'll jump on bikes at the school and we won't, we won't, it's an instructor bike. We don't know if the instructor just rode it and it's got hot tires or it's been sitting because we, we could feel the tire, but we forget. And off we go down the pit lane and you'll see the instructors pull the clutch in and rear brake it just to see, okay, if it, if it, it stops really well, it's hot and we are happy with it. If it locks up right away, ABS is right away, we know it's cold. And that's a perfect example. We'll use rear brake against the throttle occasionally, not ever front brake against the throttle. That's, that's a really big but common myth out there. We want to close the throttle completely to the front brake, come off the brake completely back to the throttle. So never overlap the front brake and throttle for a lot of reasons we can talk about, but we will overlap rear brake and throttle. For instance, we all have FC1s at the school. Um, we do them two-up bikes, all that stuff. We'll use FC1 rear brake against the throttle in big, fast, sweeping corners. We're knees on the ground. We're accelerating, and we'll use a little bit of rear brake to make sure we don't spin it up non-TC bike. We use a lot of rear brake on two up laps because, and this is what Sylvain's talking about. If you close the throttle to the front brake lever, so you roll off the throttle to the front brake lever, as you start to close your throttle, Sylvain and the instructors on the two up laps will sneak on some rear brake. That rear caliper clamping that disc slows front weight transfer. So the rear shock rebounds slower because it's being clamped by that brake. As we close the throttle, it's rear brake, but as we build front brake, the rear will come out of it. So that's what, that's why you're overwhelmed, right? Now, now you're like, well, I don't, I don't, I can't really think about all that. But Sylvain will say, as he closes the throttle, he's in the rear. As he builds front pressure, the rear comes out because the rear is off the ground. And as he puts the front pressure back and gives away front brake, he'll go sneak back into the rear. And it's the best place to mess with all this stuff is on a dirt bike. We all have dirt bikes. We all play around on dirt bikes. Uh, and, and just for someone like Sylvain to talk about that kind of stuff, it is overwhelming. But at some point, it should make sense. So just think about this. Before he builds any front brake, he's in the rear. That slows rear rebound. It slows the bike, too. As he builds front brake, he's out of the rear because it's off the ground. As he gives away front brake and the rear tire comes back in contact, he might sneak on some more rear. And so the beautiful thing about the sport, in my opinion, 
is how logical it is. There's very few mysteries that can't be explained, whether whether they're correct technique or incorrect technique. Okay, so twice, twice when you're slowing down at first before yeah. you before the first before before the tire comes off the ground before yeah. before the rear before the front sinks and then yeah. the second time when it comes back on the ground and you're already starting to trail break basically exactly right and so you can see uh, why, why so many people want a rear brake on the handlebar because you will have trouble with body position in right handers as you rear brake it you'll love it in left handers and I'll, I'll tell you for all, all the people listening out there um, especially those who are open-minded you know if you if you want to be good at this sport you better be get really open-minded because there'll be some things that you are trying to do on your own that do not work and at some point you got to say you know what this isn't working I'm gonna try something else and and uh, we have a, a saying at our school and it is for curriculum it's for instructors it's certainly for students if I'm wrong I want to be wrong for as short a time possible <laughs> that's such a that's yeah. such a great thing to think and and uh, you know everybody who's been to our school when they come back to the school they say man you guys have changed things and we say yeah we've changed things so we're, we want to get better and I think anybody who who comes to our school certainly I hope people listening uh, to this you want to get better and if you're open-minded you can so put this in your brains during the two up laps on the FC1s and the MT10s where we put students on the back it's it's not mandatory but almost if the rear brake boils the fluid out of it which has happened occasionally on super hot days bunch of two-ups in a row we boil the fluid out of the fluid out of the rear brake the two-up lap suffers it suffers and it is very i won't say very difficult it's much i want to say that it's more difficult to do a good two-up lap without the rear brake it's that big a thing it's yeah you, you just blew our minds yep well it's it's part of the deal um I raced a very fast TZ750 for all these years, uh, five, six years, R Rusty Bigley's bike. And we had to get the rear brake working because the person who raced it before me never touched it. But I needed a rear brake because the thing would wheelie third and fourth gear. So all of a sudden we got wheelie control, traction control. If we run off, I got a rear brake. I've got rear brake to slow weight, front weight transfer. And that final one, the rear brake to slow front weight transfer is the is the priority for people like Chris Paris, Kyle Wyman, Cody Wyman, these instructors of mine. That's really what they want the rear brake for. And I can't wait till you try it because it'll, it, you know, could be that last little bit to corner entry that smooths things out. I'll, I will definitely give it a try. Yep. Yep. I'll let you know if I come uh, back in an ambulance. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> next carry, next class of riders that uh, will lap you on a two up. Yeah. We'll be, yes. We'll be doing our best on, a, on, a, on our motorcycles and you'll pass us with a two yes, up sir. twice. Yes, sir in a session that, that's what they are and, and you know we do the two up uh as an instructional thing it is and and we will tell students if you if you're freaked out first of all your eyes are too low but if you're freaked out by the speed just tap the instructor on the chest and say hey it's too fast and we will tell students if you get done with the two up lap and it was freaky fast and you didn't learn a thing do it again because the instructor went too fast for you it was overwhelming because if you you know you you have you had a two up lap bill yes you, if you if you can process it, if it's not too crazy, if you can process it, it's a huge learning curve. People get off these two-up laps and they go, I had no idea my tires would do that. I had no idea that's how hard these, these people break. I couldn't believe how much rear group we have. And then the question is, well, did the instructor ever grab the brakes or stab the throttle? No, he never did that. The instructor ever flicked the bike in the corner? No, he never did that. 
And the point is they weren't going smooth. So the student thought they were going smooth. They were going smooth because that is the only way to ride that fast. So that instruction on the two up is, is mind boggling. And, you know, you can imagine, you can imagine students up at our school, they've never been on the back of a motorcycle. I mean, they're, they're, you know, 45 year old men, they're not getting on the back of on the back of the motorcycle and we convince them to do it. And they're so glad they do. So anybody who can get a two up from a qualified uh, pilot, it's, it helped. It's helpful. I have a question. Yeah. Did, did I remember my... that being the revelation for me. Yeah. It yes. was like, wow, I can't believe that, that bike can slow down so hard, can accelerate so hard, how early people get on the throttle. I mean, you learn a lot if you have time to take some mental notes through that. And then yeah. you get instantly faster because then you're less scared. You say, well, if the bike can do this, then I'm not going to get myself in trouble if I apply the right techniques. That's exactly right. That's the idea behind it. I'm glad it, it hit you that way because it can be thought of as a thrill ride. In fact, we put people in our vans and we have to say, you know what? This isn't just for fun. This is just to learn the track. This is because we're going to drive the van as closely as we can to how we ride a motorcycle. Steering wheel angle is lean angle. And, and all of a sudden, students leave that school, our school, with the idea that when I drive my car truck van, I'm driving it like I'm riding my motorcycle. And that will really help people out there, you know, thinking about trail braking, initial throttle, all those things. So d did my friend uh, Brian Burgess, did he get a to upright? And, and how yeah. did his face look like after? <laughs> well, is, is he a police officer? He is. Yeah, he teaches. He's in Europe now. That I yeah. asked him to come on the podcast, but he's, he's in Europe in Germany right now till the end of the month. Uh, yeah. He trains all the police officers in Vegas. That's what it was, yeah. And he's a he's buddy with Steve Ritchie and all those guys, right? Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. He, he trains at my school in jiu-jitsu, so that's, oh, that's how cool. I know him. Yeah, yeah. Half, half the people in my school are cops. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I bet he got a two-up lap because we do try to push people to it, and I would think he did. And, you know, that's a perfect example of a, a guy who, you know, he's in charge. He, he, he runs the race programs, he does training programs, he's – He's a police officer to give up that ego and to say, okay, I'm going to sit on the back of this bike and trust this person to do it. And I will say to anybody who's going to come to our school, we take the two up laps as seriously as we take a national and it'll be Isaiah Davis, Cody Wyman, Kyle Wyman, Michael Haynow, me, Chris Paris. It's a very limited group doing the two up laps because they are so serious. And so uh, I think we probably had to convince Brian of that a little bit. <laughs> All right, I have, I have. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nabil. Well, I was gonna say, uh, I don't know where you want to go next, Gal, but I was gonna say we've talked a lot about the corner entry. Maybe we should talk about the exit. Yeah. Okay. But um, I don't know if you want to mention something before, Gal. Uh, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna go to the questions. You know, we're we're already almost an hour into it. We haven't started with the questions yet. <laughs> well, we're talking writing techniques. This is oh, okay. Great. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Writing <laughs> techniques. Okay. Well, I, I think you know my personal opinion is people would like to tune in if they if they hear it's me and they know what I do for a living they'd like to hear writing techniques not necessarily about my life and I, I'm much more comfortable talking about writing techniques uh, uh, especially uh, especially because there's some weird things going on in the industry where a, a year or so ago they were upset that the motorcycle industry wasn't growing and then they had a big round table and they discussed oh the price of bikes oh the price of insurance oh the number of things that people can do that aren't motorcycle related in America and how diverse America is for things they do. None of they talked about this. They talked about that. And they never talked about new riders learning the wrong things. And how do you grow a business if you can't keep the new customers in it? 
And so as on the outside of that circle going, hey, wait, there's one more thing you're forgetting, riding technique. And I, I, I know, I know, uh, you know, obviously I've been doing this a long time. I'm really into doing this. I'm into doing this because of the life that motorcycling has given me. You know, my father was a motorcyclist. Even my mother got her license when she was 53 years old. I met my wife, Judy, at a racetrack. Um, all my best friends are racers and, and, and you know, riders. And just it's, it's, I live for it. I like y'all. You guys just started to start a podcast, spend money on something you weren't sure were going to work because you love the sport. And bringing in Colin and all the people you've spoken with, it's a big thing. So we all love this. And so my, my give back is to tell people what works and what doesn't work based on my opinion and experience. So the number one place we're dying is running wide in corners. If we will trail brake pressure in the corner, trail that geometry control in the corner, the corner entry gets a lot easier. In fact, it changes. Everything changes. Your bike steers better with geometry, weight forward. But the second part of it is people have heard when in doubt, power out. People have heard you should be braking or you should be accelerating to be efficient. People have heard brake. This is crazy. It's on the internet. Brake, get off the brakes, gas, and then turn. Completely opposite of what's right. So the second part of the corner, you trail the brakes into your into the corner, trail brake in your corner until you're happy with two things, and that is speed and direction. So you trail the brakes in the corner until you're happy with speed and direction. In other words, your brain calms down and says, I'm going to make this corner. That's, that's as simple, and we all drive this way, we all ride this way, trail brake pressure in. Or at least decelerate into the corner if you're not braking. But of course, your fingers are up on the brake lever just in case. So you trail brake in, happy with speed and direction, that's take care of the entry. But between braking, coming off the brakes, and accelerating, building mile an hour, is neutral or maintenance throttle. And, and guys, neutral or maintenance throttle does not get spoken about enough. Everybody says brake, accelerate. But between braking and accelerating, before you accelerate your motorcycle, you go to neutral throttle. And that neutral throttle is a different percentage of throttle depending on the bike, car, or whatever. On a slower bike, neutral throttle, which holds your speed. We call it maintenance throttle because your speed is maintained mid-corner. On a small bike, a uh, R3, you'll use quite a bit of throttle, maybe 21% of throttle to hold your speed. On a fast bike, right, your KTM, it'll be one-half percent of throttle to hold your speed. So you pick up enough throttle to hold your speed. And riders, you stay at that speed until two things come into play. Number one, you can see your exit. The road's opening, the track is opening, and number two, you can take away lean angle. Because in the back, just like the front, we have only 100% of lean angle available. So the riders that are at 97 points of lean angle and add five points of acceleration spin the rear tire. So neutral throttle, maintenance throttle, you're holding your lean angle, you're waiting for the corner to open, so you can take away lean angle. And in some corners, I know in the Colorado Canyons I ride, I uh, lived in California for dozens of years, You've got to hold that throttle for a long time, seconds. Oh, your bike should sound like that. Oh, it's just waiting, waiting. Streets of Willow, corners like that. You're just waiting until those two things come into play, and then you get to accelerate only when you can see the exit take away lean angle. And all of a sudden, your life changes, and you quit struggling with these running wide issues. You trail the brakes into the corner, controlling your geometry and speed until you're happy with your speed and direction. You come off the brakes and go to neutral throttle. You hold your speed in the corner until you can see the exit take away lean angle. When that happens, you get to accelerate the bike in a linear fashion as you take away lean angle. And not only does street riding become super joyful and speeds will increase up to the speed limit, of course, but you show up at these track days and you get put in the B group right away. 
you work your way through a group right away. You have to be a control rider. Uh, you go to Arma and you win because you're not crashing your brains out. You're not trying to make the corner anything that, that it isn't. You break into your happy, you hold your speed, and you accelerate off the corner, and you apply that to the next corner and the next corner, and all of a sudden, you get to be doing what I get to do. I show up at these armor races, and I get to win on any bike I touch. Knock wood so far, thank you, God, but because I'm riding this way. And so, Nabil, when you ask about the corner entry and exit, those are the things we chase. And, and you, you both are nodding your heads. You're both going, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You already knew it. You may not have heard explained this way, but you already knew that's what you should be doing. And so you run wide in a corner because you jump off the brakes or you don't brake. And of course, radius equals miles per hour, so your bike runs wide. Or number two, when you get in the corner, you snap on the throttle. The forks extend, right, engineers? The forks extend, and the bike is designed to run wide. So now you're accelerating too early, and of course, the bike no longer steers. And it doesn't matter. I mean, look, look at the look at some of the talent these racers have they cannot accelerate the bike until they can take away lean angle because they don't it'll spin or it'll run wide. So that's, that's how we start to talk about it in that type of wording. Yeah. So a couple of questions on specifics. One thing I've heard, and then there was Eric at the time. Uh, there's a point when you're trail braking, you keep the throttle closed and there's a point where the bike pivots. Like there's a notable improvement in how the bike turns and you never opened the throttle before that how do you reconcile this with a longer turn where you actually have to have maintenance throttle? so some turns you can v you're basically breaking to the point the bike pivots you accelerate out there's very little neutral throttle and and some other have a longer one is that even applicable in a, in a, in a situation like that well, like, yeah for like, sure like turn two yeah. turn two big willow yeah turn to a fourth gear corner if you don't know anybody third fourth gear corner slightly uphill and I'll just put my hand up here, and I hope I hope we get the video going. That'll be able to get to work. Um, yep. And I'll put my hand here, and I'll I wonder if I can take my wedding ring off and put it on my other finger here because I'm used to just right. taking my wedding ring off in bars. So yeah, I don't know that depends this. if your wife's in the house <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all right. So everybody can see my ring there, maybe. Yeah. So this is a long radius corner. Uh, turn to it, Willow. Let's say pretty close. Um, we'll get in. We'll trail break in, and. We know at some point, this is where the bike pivots, right, Nabil? This is where the bike has to pivot. The bike pivots, whatever, and I don't want everybody to think it pivots. Uh, it's just where the direction change has to take place, ideally. Between my finger, where we get done with the brakes, and that, you can you can actually accelerate a little bit and turn two. You can actually accelerate up to the point the rear tire is ready to spin, and at that point, you'll hold your speed. So you get up to neutral throttle, where the bike is at the limit of grip at, on the rear, and you hold it right in here, right where my ring is, you might want to close the throttle gently, put weight forward, probably won't need the brakes on most bikes, uh, close the throttle gently, put weight forward, the fork collapses gently, the mile an hour slows, radius is a mile an hour, mile an hour comes down, the bike pivots, points, and then you get to go again. And Nabil, the people who will not close their throttle here, they don't have the discipline, they have the skill to close the throttle. They don't have the discipline, they're trying to get the bike driving back here. Remember, we can only accelerate when we can see the exit takeaway lean angle. You can't see the exit or takeaway lean angle back here. So you maintain that speed. The best riders will maintain that speed at the limit of grip. And that that's that's up to your risk tolerances, etc. But we maintain that speed right here, but right here, the bike closes the throttle gently, the weight goes forward, the bike changes direction, and then we can drive it out. And that's the secret to these long radius corners. Don't get too sweaty about get in as fast as you can, hold your speed, 
make sure you get the bike pointed. And what will happen? I'll put my ring back on there. What will happen during practice on these long radius corners? You'll start to accelerate back here and the bike will run wide and you'll have to hold your throttle. You won't be able to truly accelerate off the corner. On the street, that is fatal because now the bike runs wide into this on oncoming traffic. Here's a truck right here and you've picked the throttle up, accelerated too early. So everything we teach will certainly help our graduates win races. And it's kind of crazy. When you look at Moto America, uh, the number of graduates at the front, it's, it's crazy. Or instructors at the front, it's crazy. We're kind of the best kept secret in American road racing because we're expensive and no one says, I went to the school, but it's amazing how many graduates. They know they've got to let the bike point here. So here we got a truck coming and the rider lets the bike point and now they find out the truck is partly in their lane. They leave the throttle shut longer. The bike points longer, goes underneath the truck in their lane and it becomes very, very safe. So the secret is realizing where does the direction change happen? In this case, turn two, long radius corners. It happens quite late. Hold the throttle gently. Does that help? Helps Absolutely. Me. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be braking, 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 pivot, accelerate. It could be braking and then accelerate if it's a long turn or at least maintain and then roll off point and then go. You got it. And that, that we would like to break to the slowest part of the corner. But if you think about my, my turn two, again, the slowest part of the corner is somewhere here, certainly corner entry, but so, and you know, I did well at Willow Springs and I rode Wayne Rainey's 500 Grand Prix bike there. Um, I rode Matt Maladin's sewer bike there back in the day when they let journalists ride these bikes. Right. And on these bikes, uh, or, but my 250 is probably, uh, my most knowledgeable bike there. FCR 600. I did well on that thing too. Right here. I knew that's where the slowest part of the corner was. So as we turn the bike in, we'll turn the bike in, we'll trail break in, get in as fast as we can, pick the throttle up, load the rear tire, put the load in gently, put the load in gently at this point, start to accelerate up to the point where the rear tire, two things, rear tire either starts to spin or the limit or the bike runs too wide. So we will accelerate gently, probably gaining, I don't know, you know, 12 miles an hour, maybe accelerating, accelerating, accelerating to the point where, Oh shoot. Now the bike's got to turn, roll off and let it turn. And the riders that don't roll off here, you pass them on the brakes into three because they don't get direction. So don't feel shy about accelerating mid corner because remember if you have grip, and your rear tire can handle it, we will accelerate mid-corner. Great. Great. Thank you. So yes. then the, the corollary to that question is tire spin and how much gas. How do you learn to put on more and more gas as you exit? So, you know, I've, I've started, I'm still very conservative. Good. Never had traction control. And so I'm always afraid of opening the throttle too much. So I kind of coast a little longer probably, and I'm, I'm more comfortable with a, with a lower lean angle before I start accelerating. Yeah. And I've always wondered, how do you learn to, you know, kind of be more aggressive without killing yourself? So yeah. is that easy to feel tire spin? Is there some signs where, okay, now I've pointed the bike, it's time to start accelerating even before I'm usually comfortable? Yeah, there's that, that, this, this is the question we all ask, right? I mean, I was number two in the nation in 250 Grand Prix, mainly because Rich Oliver and Jimmy Felice, the two people who beat me, got more out of their tires. They would get closer to that 100% of rear grip than I would. I'd come off the corner at 97% of rear grip, 3% underneath the tire spinning, and they'd come all off the corner at 100, you know, among, among other things. But let's say that's one of the main things that we do. So there's a couple of ways to do it. One is get on dirt bikes. Do you have a dirt bike? No, but I've gone on some, some before. Yeah. Get on dirt bikes. Go to, these, uh, go to these dirt track schools. Colin Edwards got one. Uh, Rich Oliver has a really good one. Danny Walker, uh, Gary LaPlante. And I, I'm, I don't want to leave anybody out, but uh, 
We also have Champ Mini, which we put you on mini road racers. And on a dirt bike, you get to feel that rear and get a feel for it. On a road racer, if everybody will understand on a road racer, the tire will take a tremendous load, but not an abrupt load. So at Willow Springs, back in the day, people would crash in turn two, going slower, slower than the race winner because they had initial throttle too quickly. They put the load in before the weight could transfer back. So if you put that load in gently and add it in a linear fashion, and turn two is a perfect place to play with it. You're hung off, full body off, knee out, the whole thing, and start to just accelerate with your mind only on one thing, rear grip. So you're in turn two, long radius corner, accelerating, feeling that rear grip, feeling that rear grip, that linear fashion. Snap it on, you hurt yourself because of that, but getting a feel for that rear grip. And just so you know, and everybody listening knows, we're always searching for that, all of us. With a TC bike like you have, especially a KTM with a high-level TC, you it'll start to flash. It'll start to detune, de uh, de but that's a good place to play with it. Remember, your hand moves linearly. The tire will spin linearly, and it will tell you. It'll yell up and say, hey, I, I'm at the limit of grip. TC's clicking on, or the thing's just starting to move around a little bit. I promise you, on a hot tire with linear throttle, the tire will spin and tell you gently what to do, for sure. Coming off the corner... If everybody will really pay attention to Grand Prix, uh, World Superbike, et cetera, watch how the riders drop their head on corner exit. Uh, Josh Hayes talked about standing the bike up gently and leaving his head there. To, to, in other words, to leave your weight offset, to offset acceleration. If you think about what we're doing with head drop on corner exit, we are offsetting acceleration. If we, if we lifted our head and accelerated, the bike would run wide. We don't want that just yet. We don't want to run wide just yet. So we'll drop our head on acceleration. And if if you if anybody wants to really overdo one thing, it's that head drop on acceleration. And watch how much more grip that rear tire has because your radius stays the same due to body, not just lean angle. So I would really push you to drop your head, match that with your throttle acceleration. Thank you. Great. Mm -hmm. That was just a master's course in corners. <laughs> just right now. Yeah. I don't well, think I don't think we ever heard it quite like that before. Yeah, well, I know, uh, you know, all of our personalities, certainly in running a school, you want to give best practices. And, you know, it, we didn't call it Nick Einock School or Chris Paris School or Kyle Wyman or Coach. We didn't call it that. We call it the champion school. What are the best in the world doing? A lot of us have won championships and that helps. But what are the best in the world doing? And you see them dropping their head on corner exit. So we would encourage our students to practice that. And we just luckily can fill in the reasons why. Don't do it because uh, Quattraro does it. Do it because you can accelerate harder with head drop. And and if there's one thing, if, if are any ARMA people or racers are listening to this, especially riders older like me that, that learned back in the day when people were a little bit twisted up and they weren't moving around the bike as much, if there's anything that I believe most ARMA racers could do to improve safety and go faster, and that that's quite a feat, right? Be safer and be faster, and it is all in body position. Whole cheek off, knee out, head drop on the exit, arm across the top of the fuel tank, commit heavily to this because it makes you safer at the lap time you're running or at the risk you're taking, it makes you faster. And that's, that's our personalities, man. I want to, I want to show up at a racetrack and be, and win. Is that, that fair to say? Yep. Now I have a good exercise that uh, Carrie made me do one day and the ability might, might benefit you if you want. <clears throat> so it was back when I started uh, my very short career at WSMC. Um, and I was using, since, since I didn't have mechanics or it was just me in a truck, right? And 
what what I do is I put the Pirelli Pro slicks on on my bike, and those were the tires with the red um, with the red stripe, uh, and those things they didn't have a lot of grip, but they had a lot of feel, and I, I love those things because you can get you know six or seven weekends out of those things. Uh, but when they go, they go. So when, when they, they get to the point where they're too worn out, that's it. It's like riding on glass. Uh, and um, I went to a track day with Kerry uh, back when he was doing the, upper, the, the hyper circle track days and Big Willow. And halfway through the day, uh, the tires that, you know, I had, I had six, six weekends on them already, uh, which is unheard of. For Big Willow, I mean Big Big Willow, you can fry your you know your slicks in twenty minutes. Yeah. Um, and I, I had six track days on them, and and they were still you know they were still good. They were sliding, but they were uh, they were still you know okay. I'm cheap. <laughs> so um, halfway through the day, the tires that's it. They go. They just start sliding. I, I can't feel them, and and I was like, yeah, this is dangerous. I'm 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 pitting. I'm I'm done for the day. And then Kerry comes around and goes like, what are you doing? And I go like, yeah, my tires are done. You want to put new tires on my bike? I'll, I'll go back out. And he goes like, no, 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 no. Come on, just follow me. And uh, it was just, I was, I was trying to ride on glass and trying to figure out what the bike's doing when it's sliding around. Uh, following Kerry at a pace that was way too fast for those tires. <laughs> And um, I followed him for a session, and I came back and I and I pitted it for the day. But I was, that was that was the best exercise I ever had on, in how to slide a motorcycle around and still trying to figure out the balance. It it just just try try going out on older tires. That's it. Didn't uh, Ben Spees talk about that running old tires in practice and yeah. doing the same thing, right? Because because the bottom line is that racers cannot win races on new tires you've got to be able to win on a, on a used tire and i know ben practiced on a lot and it's a it's an interesting thing and yeah there's there's a there's some shortcuts to it you know dirt bikes going to these some of these dirt track schools being on a tire that spins and gives you that feedback it's a it's an interesting deal and you know gal if you think about what i, I know we were at freddie's school one day and a, a student raised her hand and said you know freddie will you ever teach us to ride in the rain and freddie said that's all i'm doing and so in other words, Freddie was Freddie was teaching a, a way to ride at any grip level, and and that is the smooth inputs because the tire will take a tremendous load, not an abrupt load. So that's kind of what you had to do, Gal. Right? You had to smooth things out yeah. per se. Yeah. 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 I, I've done it accidentally when I wore the tire down to the cord, and actually I was I was getting coached by Chris Aldrich, and he follows me, and I'm sliding, and I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm MotoGP level now, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he has me follow him, and I thought he wanted me to follow him faster. He actually pulls in the pits and goes, are you insane? <laughs> yeah, I can see the white on your right. tires. <laughs> Got to get your money out of them. But, you know, it was sliding. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, we, we got some questions for you now. <laughs> uh, your first proper superbike was a 1980 GS1000S with replica. I know I know everything. Wow. Uh, how did it compare to uh, your prior bike, uh, and what did you learn from it? And your prior bike, I believe, was an XT500. Okay, that's kind of crazy, but yeah. I know, right? Um, you, yeah, you, you know, good. You know why? If, if you Google me hard enough, you're going to figure out that I have a psychic website. 
Ah, I see. Oh boy. Okay, good. That's well. I'm a little nervous now. The the uh, yeah the XC500. I got when I was 16. Uh, my dad was a rider, motorcycle rider. Thank goodness. And the uh, the GS1000S was a West Cooley replica. If you remember those, and I still have it. Uh, I have. I don't have the same one. I actually sold that one, the original one, to Mitch Bame, and he crashed it up a uh, little Cottonwood Canyon in Salt Lake. But sorry, Mitch, had to play under the bus there. But uh, year, a few years later, I found one in Detroit, and I flew to, to when I was at the magazine. I flew to Detroit and bought it, and it's only two serial numbers different than the, my original one. So I do still have a GS1000S, and uh, I was a total novice forever. In fact, I took my bike into the Suzuki shop for the Salt Lake Suzuki shop for a um, 10,000 mile tune-up and they said I have not revved it high enough yet to get any ring pressure to seat the rings in the cylinders. <laughs> That's how I was. I rode with my dad, we rode with the Salt Lake Motorcycle Club, we went brum, brum, brum. <laughs> so it could have been any bike but it was it was beautiful and, and of course I became a West Cooley fan and la- later got to meet him and all that stuff. So. Uh, I was such a novice. I didn't know. We ended up uh, getting a bunch of other bikes and getting faster in the canyons and stuff like that. But that thousand S, which I still have, was was you know I can still smell a brand new bike how it was, and it was such a big deal to me. And I ended up working at the Suzuki shop, becoming a flat rate you know mechanic uh, during college for four years, five years, and ending up with a thousand Katana. If you remember those and all those things, so it it started me into the deal. But to tell you about the XT five hundred. I was down in uh, Salt Lake City, and every Saturday, Friday night, we'd go down there. When we had, we had a, my buddy had a big block Chevy truck, and all hopped up, and we took our cars down there and drag raced on the street and looked at girls and stuff like that. So I would take my XT six hundred or five hundred down there, and it was quick, right? It was a single cylinder, five hundred cc, quick. In quotes, <laughs> a Z one comes next to me, and we're gonna race. And I think, okay, here we go. And it was like this: we lined up like this, Z one, you know. 900 cc four cylinder and my xt and the light turned green and it was like this <laughs> it was like a it was like a roadrunner movie where i had barely bike had rolled one foot and he was one mile down the road and that really stuck with me realizing that you know what i had was was crap so anyway i got to move up pretty quickly from there let's talk about uh the 1984 bimota kb3 how how did you end up purchasing that bike? What did you do to it? I, I heard it had an engine that was not really an original engine. What what did you do to that bike? Yeah, well, you know that the Bamoda thing was a uh, I'd heard about them of course when I was a, a civilian before I hired on the magazine. And in 1984, I got hired by a motorcyclist magazine. Went down to um, Los Angeles to work, and I met a guy named Harry Millet, Harry Malay. And he owned the Bomoda distributor, and he had the trickest SB4, SB3 Bomoda, and I got the chance to ride it and do stories on it. So from that moment on, I wanted the Bomoda. And if 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 back then they were tube frame, beautiful bikes, completely handmade with uh, Japanese or some Italian motors in them. And so I found this KB3 that was in parts, it was complete junk. Uh, and Mike Worsham and Andre Castaños and I rebuilt it in Mike Worsham's garage. And Mike Worsham was, was and is an amazing machinist. Uh, we had it painted by Gerard Design, and it was very trick, not a stock piece on it, performance wheels and brakes. Uh, I wasn't, I'm not a big fan of too much stock stuff with it, one caveat, but um, I really like to have my own bikes. 
And so we painted it and did all sorts of cool things to it. And it would had a big block engine built back east, um, undercut transmission, all sorts of cool things. And it was a neat bike. You know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and it's still around. I, I, I sold it to not a friend of mine, but a, a someone I know. And it's still in someone's connect, connect, collection. Do you know where it is? It, I think it showed up on eBay at some point 10 years ago. Yeah. Right now, like right now, I don't, I don't really know where it is right now, but I'm yeah. sure it's going to pop up sometime yeah. in the future. Yeah. And it, we, we, you know, it was definitely a custom one-off Bimota, which is already pretty custom, but it was a neat bike. And, um, but you know, I got to a point in my life where I wasn't riding some of these bikes and they were worth a lot of money. So I've always been able to sell a bike and buy a bike, uh, sell a bike or two and buy a car. And I've always been able to kind of make that money work. Judy's total motorhead. My wife's a total motorhead. And so she was into that. Okay, sell that and get something else. And it's kind of leapfrogged along, you know. Did, did you start uh, Sport Rider? Yeah, started Sport Rider. Yep. So how was it being a journalist at the golden age of print magazines? I mean, the money, the women, the fame, uh, the hotel rooms, right? The press, <laughs> the press launches. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was better than, than I could describe uh, because, you know, if you, if you were a motorcycle enthusiast and you worked at a place where the bikes were free, the insurance was free, the fuel was free, the tires were free, track time was free, um, gear, all the gear you'd ever want. I still remember when I got, I still have my first leathers from motorcyclists hanging on my garage wall. I, I, it was just, it was, it was so very cool. And I was at, at a point in my life, I was 24 when I got hired. I was in a point in my life, kind of through my dad's outlook, where I really did appreciate it. You know, there's many times I looked around and said, this is really, really great. And I lived with Lance Holst and Jason Black. Those two guys, we started Sport Rider together. Lance and I especially started Sport Rider, and Jason Black came into it very soon. And so we lived together. We worked together. We weren't married. We just had the time. I mean, every day was testing, whether we were Sundays or Saturday, just oh. testing. We had a rule that you had to go 100 miles an hour every day. Um, that was, <laughs> well, there was times getting on the Hollywood freeway, you know, on a Ninja 250, you're tucked in, <laughs> only get to 83 or whatever. But the, so it was really a, a great time. And it introduced me to some fabulous people, you know, um, not, certainly Freddie, uh, I met him as a journalist, but Eddie Lawson was a big part of my life. Uh, he and I did a story together, uh, over the years called Lawson's lines, where he would talk about his Grand Prix and his his way of racing really rubbed off on me, you know, his way of focusing so much on his riding, not worrying so much about bike setup, thinking about being so mentally into it and the techniques of it all that really rubbed off on me. Scott Gray, Thomas Stevens, some of these uh, national champions who really affected my riding and my teaching and my coaching and, and my racing. So the, the things I got from journalists, journalism were beyond belief. I, I really met my wife during that time. Uh, some of my best friends are, I, I don't see them as much, but they're still some of my closest friends forever. Uh, met my best man through the magazine and stuff. So it was, it was one of those times and, you know, I can't, I can't imagine it being any better. Every year we went on a, on a tour around America. We just, that was part of the deal. We'd take a week or two off and go touring around America on bikes. And the best one, there are a lot of good ones, but the best one was when Montana had no speed limits, daytime speed limits. And we called it Montana Bond. Did you ever see that one? <laughs> we called it Montana Bond. And so we took a ZX-11, a Katana, and a, some other fastest fastest production bikes we could get. And me and Lance and Jason, 
and we dragged her along, along part of our staff and just went as fast as we could go, as fast as we could possibly go for a, a week. And I remember passing Highway Patrol and just ta and no one caring. It was it was. Tell, tell him you know. Tell him you know, Brian. That's a <laughs> yeah, good that's right. Oh yeah, I'll do whatever I got to take. It's fair game. Well, what do you think about what's going on now? I mean, it looks like everybody that owns a GoPro puts out, you know, content out there and, and gets views and followers and gets, you know, and makes a living out of it when, when the fact of the matter is that they're not, you know, even remotely qualified to, to say what they think about anything. Well, that is an issue. That's definitely an issue that, that we've talked about. And I know when I read, uh, I'm in the cars pretty heavily. I think a lot of us are. When I read a car and driver, for instance, or whatever, I want to know who is who is speaking to me, who's the author, and and I don't want to say that they need to have successful racing credentials, but at the same time, you know, the the, the saying is the 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 better you ride, the more you know, and and I mean bikes too. I know when I was at the magazines, uh, Jason and Lance rode my TZ250 because it was the best bike out there. It was the best handling bike out there. So if you're riding. Um, If you're riding a 600 Ninja and you've ridden a TZ250, you can put the Ninja into its place in the grand scheme of things. So, so I do think credentials are an issue. And I, I would I would really encourage those people doing that, making making a living, be, being these influencers and, and video journalists, is to really work on your writing because you're writing, you're writing to a pretty knowledgeable audience. It's crazy how knowledgeable motorcyclists are. And, you know, BS goes doesn't go very far a, yeah. a poorly done video uh poor pictures uh misunderstanding of of simple things like radius and mile an hour I, i really would push everybody that's that's writing to the to the masses because they have the passion that's the problem you know you can't you can't downplay their passion they have the passion for it but i would encourage them to become as as good as they can be because then the people they're writing to are extremely knowledgeable Yeah, they're good at understanding YouTube algorithms. They know where to push the content. They, they know SEO. And that those are the things that they know that are lacking in the traditional uh, journalism, right? I mean, I don't want to say you guys because you, you, know, you don't do it full-time anymore. I, I've seen you, you know, write for Revzilla and uh, Inatch Tuesday and, and all those yeah. columns. But you're, you're a columnist now. Uh, but those are the things they're missing in in. In, in journalism right now that the understanding of how to push the content out there in, in the best in the most effective way knowing knowing when to push it which RSS feeds to push it to knowing how to monetize it correctly uh, th those are the things that you, those youtubers have um, and and it gives them a, a pretty big stage for content that you know really is I don't want to say misinformation but uh, it's it's just it shouldn't People shouldn't take it seriously. Well, it's it's interesting you say that. I, I it's a you, you you know more about it than I do. But here's here's what you guys have done. You have come on and said, rather than us tell us our opinion about road racing training, da da da, schools, riding technique. In my case, let's get a hold of Carrie Andrews. Let's get a hold of Bostrom. Let's get a hold of um, Colin. Let's let's Josh Hayes. I mean national most of the time national let's find those people to do this and i i really uh applaud you on that because there are enough opinions out there but at some point at the pointy end right where, where when it all counts whether it's your own personal lap record whether it's the last race of a national or a club race or your class race or it's a downhill corner on a road you've never seen before 
with your son on the back and it's raining, when it all counts, misinformation kills people. And that's what really hurts. So if, if I, you know, I listened to your podcast, if you guys would have had a, a bit of a, a shit show going and you guys were throwing out all sorts of crazy things and I'd be like, ah, why would I, why would I get on there? But you're not, you're saying, Hey, you know what? You do this for a living. You're successful at it. Uh, we have very few crashes at our schools. Our instructors are winning. Our graduates are winning, which is the the best way to measure it. What are you doing? And that that's truly what I would encourage some of these, uh, the YouTube, whatever, whatever uh, people, whatever we call them, to do is get a hold of these professional voices. Because if your voice is going opposite of what the best in the world are doing, you're wrong, and wrong hurts. For instance, this break gas turn video, it's got like, eight, I mean, three quarters of a million views. Brake, get down with the brake, let go of the brakes, accelerate, extend your forks, make your contact pads in the front smaller, and then turn. Brake, gas, turn. And everybody, riders, 100% wrong. It is 100% wrong because when I say wrong, the techniques that we teach have got to work at the pointy end. They've got to work when you pop over the hill and the traffic is completely stopped. They got to work when you pop over the hill and it's gravel. You get down in the corner and it tightens. You get down in the corner and there's a deer standing in your lane. Pick your excuse. Couches in the lane. We've seen it all. You show up at your first track day and it starts to rain and you're on DOT races. You show up at your first track day and the tire guy is not there and you got to run a six week old tire. When it all counts, it has to be right. And that's why I really push what you all are doing. I really push. We've had, uh, I know. Yami Noob has been to our school. Mike on Bikes has been to our school because they, they realize, you know what? If I'm speaking to the public on about motorcycling, I better have the right message. And they we believe our message is right. And getting back to a, a thought I have, if our message is not right, we change our message because it's it's got to be best practices. Yeah. Where, where do you see this industry in 10 years? I, I know that Bonnier, they shut down a bunch of magazines. It, it looks like it's it's not going to the direction that that it it should go. Uh, where where do you see it? Where do you see it in ten years? Well, I never thought about that. That's a really good question. I know Mitch Fame runs AMA Magazine. One of the it's one of the biggest uh, paper magazines out there. I think he's over two hundred thousand monthly subscribers. Uh, so there's still some magazines kicking out there. I know Rider Magazine is still rolling, but I do see it going digital. And for the all of us who put words and pictures on paper, static. I love digital. I love videos. I, I really do like putting bikes in motion. Um, getting the message across is a little bit differently done like these podcasts, but I do enjoy that. So I, I don't mind it going more digital because we can put bikes in motion. Uh, and then there's some still some really strong websites out there. Now RevZilla with Common Tread is starting out a lot of written stuff, a lot of podcasts. Uh, Road Racing World still very strong on information articles. Cycleworld.com does a really good job with Kevin Cameron and, and Justin Dawes, some of these guys. Uh, Mark Hoyer, you know, good written word. So it may it may break down to those survival of the fittest, which is way life should be. The best will survive. Uh, the, the, the poor stuff will be cast aside, and we'll still have uh, an industry. It may not be as big as it was uh, back in the heyday. What do, you, what do you think? I mean, where do you see it going? That's that's a good question for you two because you're probably closer to it than I am. Uh, so so we're actually not. We're we're just fans of the sport, which is why we're doing the podcast. We both we both have you know jobs in in different industries, right? We're both in uh, software. Um, actually, actually, Nabil is more in in banking now, right, Nabil? 
fintech yeah fintech yeah yeah uh and yeah. and uh i i think the the way we see it is that the the editors should um for, first of all the it, it's it's just way overstaffed right the production the production on on anything that the magazine produce is it includes all those people that they don't have you know that they, they they don't have i mean i don't want to say their their number on on an excel spreadsheet but you could maximize the value of your production by um maybe outsourcing it or um do, doing other other things to make it to make it a little more uh, cost effective for example the way we produce this podcast um it's about it was about four hundred dollars to start and then zero zero money to put it up there right yeah. uh but if but if a magazine uh does that how, how long how much do you think it's going to cost them it's going to cost them tens of thousands of dollars because they're going to use a production company they're not going to do what I do, which is just a Zoom PodTrack P4 with with a bunch of hundred dollar microphones, right? Uh, and they're not going to use free software to edit it. Uh, it's going to cost them a lot of money. Uh, so they really need to be conscious of of how to do things on a budget, and uh, they need really good SEO and really good um, uh, really good understanding on how to push things forward in the digital stage. Uh, which includes when to post content, how to post post content, when to put a podcast out, when to put a video out, when to put an article out, right? Mm-hmm. How to, even the smallest things of how to interlink pages on your website have a lot of effect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if you, I mean, there was a time where um, if you if you put in a motorcycle name, um, the only thing that pop up would be asphalt and rubber, right? Uh, and and the way that guy got his traffic was people just wanted to look at high resolution images, right? So he had he had good SEO, he had high resolution images, and that was good enough, right? It's not good enough now when everybody has a website, but um, it was good enough. Uh, so, so really, going into the digital age is more complicated than what the current industry leaders think and they need to bring in the right people to help them uh, make that move. That's what I think. Okay. And, and Interesting. Have you guys had a chance to look at our champ you online school? Yeah. 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 Yep. And uh, do you want to talk? Do you want an honest opinion? Yeah. It'd be, well, off, off the record, I would love to talk about it. Okay. Because, off, the, off the record. And I'll tell you after we, we stop yeah, the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, because our, our thought was there, Gal, is that we're, our school is expensive. It's, cons- it's time-consuming, two days plus travel to get there. Uh, we aren't close to a lot of people. We, you know, there's, there's, there's people in Europe that will never get to our school. And so our idea was let's, get these, let's, let's at least start by getting these four core champions habits across. Let's get these ideas of radius is mile an hour, the focus levels necessary, what grip is, and why we're always working on direction. And that's just all that first one was, is get, get this two – these people and now we're in 121 countries and and you know it's i, I think we've had uh in amazing reviews etc cetera, etc cetera. it's never going to be a big money maker for us because our overhead is high but it's a chance for us to say we need to reach more people and that's that's what is so thrilling about online stuff is because this podcast for instance it could be handed it could be passed around for years right it's not it's not how many 
magazines you sell that month. It's the fact that everybody walks around with their magazine and hands it to the next person, and this could be around forever. So that's a big thrill for us to, to get this champion out to people that can't afford it or can't ever get to a school. And it's priced at 50 bucks because, you know, we need to sell, we need to, we need to change the industry. If, if, if straight line braking continues, if people are taught to not ride with the brake cover, not ride with their fingers like this when they're riding, with their fingers out on the brake lever, if riders don't practice proper braking technique, which is a big part of champ is how to get your bike stopped in a true emergency. If those things don't change, we'll just kind of idle along with, with the sales we have, uh, doing what we're going to do, hoping COVID comes along again and encourages people to, to get all by themselves in a helmet. Because those of us who know better change things, I, I bet you heard this from Eric Bostrom and almost everybody you talk to, this idea like, wow, the, the things that the, that, the, that the people in the industry know are not being taught uh, immediately to new riders. And that's really what, what I'm thrilled about with things like uh, digital media. I think I was saying before, everybody that gets a new motorcycle should, there's no manual, they should really get your book, right? Riding techniques, uh, right with the bike, right? So that that's something you can you can think about, just distribute it right with the bike. Yep. Well, now we got Champ U to, to distribute so much easier, you know, send you a link and, and a password. And, and I mean, I I really would love that to happen. Uh, of course, the Champ U was shot on Yamahas, but... We've started a new company called Factory Motorcycle Training, FMT, Factory Motorcycle Training, because we want to reach as many people as possible. And now we have these OEM companies hiring Factory Motorcycle Training. It is all the Yamaha Champions Riding School instructors, curriculum, ideas, push, programs, everything. But it is no longer Yamaha Champions Riding School that, that let's say, uh, you know, some, some manufacturer has to hire. Right. And it's because if, if, um, if best practices aren't taught, like for instance, when you when you pick up a rifle uh, at the Marine Corps, you might first of all you're gonna shoot you're gonna fire that rifle for days without a bullet in it. You're gonna practice that dry firing it, called snapping in. They say I'm not a Marine, but I work with them. Then you're gonna start on a 25 meter target, which is super easy to hit. But you will start right away shooting that rifle at 25 meters correctly, trigger pull, front sight, all the things that they 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 talk about. And then when you graduate up to 800 meter, you are doing the exact same thing you did at 25 meter. And that's all we're saying with press practices and rider coaching. Let's just take uh, something as simple as, as firing a rifle and do it at a short range and then extend it to the long range with the same practices. So this is what we're pushing so hard. And that's why I would, I, you know, I'm thrilled about being able to reach people digitally because, you know, somebody, somebody in, where don't we go? Somebody in South Carol, Carolina, or North Dakota, we will never do a school in their state, but they can get these these ideas across to them. A- anybody that thinks your school is expensive never got a hospital bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or broke down their uh, you know beautiful motorcycle and spent fifteen grand putting it back together. Yeah. Even if you don't get hurt, I yeah. mean, instead of buying a muffler, right? Get get the right technique. But I, you're right. I think Nick, digitally is the way to reach the world now, and and you guys made it complete and affordable and you know frankly it should be a mandatory training with your motorcycle license because that, that's the issue is everybody gets scared of motorcycles so you got mothers encouraging their kids not to ride a motorcycle or, or, or straight out forbidding them yeah. um you know the 600s are already too powerful forget about a thousand so then you get a problem with which bike to buy you know everybody wants to be a hero and buy a uh you know a ducati v4 because it looks good and then they they hurt themselves with it 
and it's too big for anybody to handle. And, and the 350s don't look attractive. And so I think there's a whole recalibration in, in industry that needs to happen. Like you need, like in cars, you need the halo model that's going to win races and, and, and look great. And sure, if you can afford it and you want to ride it to Starbucks, go ahead. But you also need these cool little bikes that made motorcycle riding safe and fun. And 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 just enjoy it. And as a mode of transportation, I mean, it kind of drives me nuts that in the West, where we have fantastic weather all year round, there's not more people on motorcycles and bikes on a daily basis compared to Europe, where the weather sucks 300 days a year. And, you know, they're still on their scooters zipping around going to work. So we got our head wrapped around this thing the wrong way, I think, at some point. And uh, that needs to change. And I think it starts with kind of good education and also showing that, the sport can be uh, addressed safely um, if you get the right education up front. I'm so with you. I'm 100% with you. I'm, I'm not a big mandate fan. I'm not a big fan of, of the government mandating us in, onto small bikes first. And that, but, but, I mean, that, that definitely would help us in a lot of ways. But if you will think about this, the two places where we die the most, and, and for those out there that are listening, especially veteran riders, may not even realize this, but um, for the last five years in a row – uh, 4,900 riders approximately have died on motorcycles every year in America. So 25,000 riders have been killed on motorcycles in America over the last five years, according to the, the stats that, that we studied. And the two places are running wide in corners all by yourself. And the second place, it's the most common crash, but the second place, most common way we die is failure to avoid a car in our path or a vehicle in our path in intersections. And riders, that's unmarked intersections. An unmarked intersection is basically an intersection with no stoplight, no stop sign. And that is cruising down the road with someone's driveway, uh, the 7-Eleven parking lot, unmarked intersections, the car pulls out and we're able, unable to avoid. And if you, if you just look at it from my point of view, which is riding technique, if you look at ride, new riders are not taught to trail brake. In fact, they're forbidden to trail brake. They only practice their stops from 20 to 25 miles an hour in a parking lot. So, I mean, last time I, I rode at 25 miles an hour, uh, consistently was was never you always pass through 25 up and down so they aren't they aren't practicing their braking and they're not taught to cover the brakes in other words ride with their fingers up which my father insisted on when i was you know 12 years old ride with your fingers up on the brake lever to cut that reaction time so so you're not trail braking you've never practiced serious stops uh before you get your license and in fact you're forbidden to cover the brake lever you've been you've been slapped don't cover the brake lever in a lot of these newer schools you've been taught power through the corner, when in doubt, throttle out, so the bike, of course, runs wide. And you tie those two, those exact things. Okay, no trail braking, bike runs wide. Power out of the corner, bike runs wide. Oh, uh, you hit the car in front of you. Oh, you're not covering the brake lever, so you're half a second late. In other words, you're a half a second closer to the emergency by the time you get the brake on, so of course you grab it. At, at 60 miles an hour, that half second takes 44 feet, which is insane. Uh, that's more than halfway through the intersection. And you've never practiced your braking. So the car pulls out, the bus pulls out, and you are late to the brakes, and you've never practiced braking. You, you, you don't understand load the fork first and then the, spread the tire out. That is not part of your understanding, yet you have a motorcycle license. And in America, thank God, you can buy a GSX-R1000 the day after you graduate from a new rider school. And I love the freedom of that. But if the coaching and the construction was better, I would love that more. And uh, we're, we're, we're so into it that we decided to, to take, take this huge monetary gamble and create Champ U. And Champ U's second uh, program after this core Champions Habits will be a new rider school. 
and we we're we're you know, we're weeks to months away from having it out. We're working on it nonstop because we're trying to say if you're motorcycle curious, like you have an idea, like I would like to ride a motorcycle. We're, we want to get this in your hands, and it'll be another very affordable price. Get it in your hands and realize this works and this doesn't. Because if you think about, let's say, you know, Ted crashes the motorcycle. So Ted crashes the bike. Every everybody who shows up to that crash and drives by that crash, they go home and say, "Don't ride a motorcycle." The first responders that show up, the police officers and the and the EMS guys, gals, they say, "Don't ever ride a motorcycle." To all their family and friends, the neighbors say, "Don't ever ride a motorcycle." Ted's family says, "Don't ride a motorcycle." So it's just this cascading ball of crap and everybody's saying don't ride a bike when in fact the motorcycle rider probably did something wrong there's very few crashes where we are complete victims like you know the 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 meteorite comes down and and smashes us and we're just sitting there in all our gear perfectly trained earplugs all the stuff very rarely it's always something that we do so our push our provable provable push is if 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 the industry could uh, jump in and adapt some of these training best practices things would change things would grow we would enjoy bikes more fewer crashes it would go in the right direction and and i can say it's approval because i've done this since 1997 actually 1995 at willow so i've been in this motorcycle training thing forever and i've watched what happens i've watched we we, we go you know knock wood we go school after school with no crashes because this is what we train we don't worry about the speed we worry about the control and uh i'm telling you it is, it is just waiting there for someone with the guts to say, this is what we have to do. Let's change things. Yeah, you're, you're talking government level now. I guess I am. Come well, on. Well, I mean, even manufacturers, right? Say it again. I'm, I'm saying even manufacturers, they could give you a training manual along with your 1,000 bike. It cost them 20 bucks, right, on, on a $25,000 bike to just give you something that says, like, read this before you start going around fast in corners or, or riding your bike. And people will. I mean, most people want to learn how to ride correctly. They just don't have access to the info. I mean, I myself started riding because a friend taught me how to ride on a Harley. And as soon as I was able to release the clutch and stole the bike, I thought I was a rider. Sure. And I was out there, you know, just going around. And obviously, you start going faster. And either you hear some of these myths like brake, accelerate, and turn, or nobody tells you anything. And you're you're really getting yourself in trouble. That's exactly right. Another aspect, you know, which is uh, driver's awareness of motorcycles. There was a study made in Germany. I can't remember who did it, but apparently the way our brains learn to not overwork themselves is if you're driving a car, your brain will actually recreate images for you. So you don't have to be constantly registering what's happening. So if you're in front of a long highway, at some point, you're actually your brain is not reading what your eyes are reading. It's just telling you that everything looks the same as you've seen it five seconds before. And the study they've done is as if you don't see small objects like motorcycles. And they've done the study where they put a motorcycle or an obstacle, and people just don't read it. They don't register. It doesn't show up in their brain, and they just you know hit you on a stop sign or, or go through it. And so I love when I see campaigns, um, you know, on billboards and so on that says you know pay attention to the motorcycles, look twice, save lives. Uh, I think we need a lot more of that too. But the less motorcycles you have, the less that becomes relevant and the less it's done. It's a bit of a vicious cycle. It, it is. I've read those uh, studies as well and, of course, thought about them. And one of the things that, that I think veteran riders do so well is to move through traffic. We move through traffic. And, you know, it, it's tough because there are speed limits. 
but we don't move through traffic with 40 miles an hour in hand. We move through traffic. We, tri we trickle through traffic. We're always a little bit quicker than traffic. And the thinking is we are, we are, as we move through traffic on the street, we are making judgments on the cars ahead of us, as opposed to sitting at static speed in traffic and letting other riders make judge drivers make judgments on us and hopefully see us. So this is a big part of it. And, and it can be misinterpreted. You know, you can get pulled over by the sheriff and say, Oh, Nick, I said, I should, I should be faster than all the traffic. Well, I am actually saying that, but we trickle through traffic. We're always a little bit quicker than us than, than the traffic. And we place ourselves to not be hit if things go wrong. And it, it's quite a science. In fact, we have a champ U uh, program going about it because I've never heard it done correctly. And I, I call it the, uh, the logically paranoid rider because paranoid means, and you've heard this before, everybody's out to kill you when in fact they're not, they're just very poor drivers. There might be a few truly incidents where the, the driver is, is deranged and et cetera. But generally speaking, they're just very poor drivers. They, they've got no training, no focus, no concentration, uh, no ability to, to steer the bike very well or car very well. So they're not trying to kill you, but, but you can pretend like they are and be logical about that. And you can make logical decisions on the type of car, uh, the number of bumps and bruises on the car, the, the, the way the driver's driving, the traffic's going on. So all these progressions are made by the veteran riders and you're nodding your head because you do, you do it. And you do it because as you paid attention and watched and learned, you saw the patterns established. So what we're trying to do for, for these newer riders is to shortcut that learning curve. And we're gonna, we're gonna do a, a champion on it because I feel so strongly about it. I, I love riding motorcycles. I love commuting on motorcycles. I love, I would ride a motorcycle before most cars any day of the week, but I got to get there. I got to be safe doing it. And so we're going to be pushing hard for that. Um, I'm also happy to see that, that new cars have those flashing lights on their mirrors. Um, I am too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I'm too. They're, they're not going to bump into you if, if their mirror is saying, Hey, there's a motorcycle there. Yeah. They might interrupt their texting. You know, all these, all these nannies, all these stay in your lane, <laughs> Have you rented the new car or do you have a new car? I mean, I, yeah, we want yeah. these, these new yeah. minivans for the school and they got stay in your lane, lane departure. They've got brake. They automatically brake. We've, we've almost crashed two minivans with automatic braking because they, they brake when they feel like you're in imminent danger. When in fact the car ahead of you is turning and you're approaching it and they put, throw the brakes on and it's been pretty crazy. So all these nannies are because people are so are poorly trained. They're poorly trained. They're poorly focused. You're allowed to have your cell phone on in the car. You're allowed to talk on it, text on it, even though it's illegal. So there is so that none of this stuff is, is brain science or, or, or brain surgery. And if any of these politicians would listen to us doing it, the people in the street, we could solve all this stuff. Cell phone does not work in the car except for 911. That, that's that's a rule. Um, you've got to go through significant training to get a license. You've got to, you know, I mean, there's so many things right down the line that we could design into Americans travel, but that probably won't happen. So we as riders need to be head on a swivel, totally paranoid, moving through traffic, um, staying out of people's ways and make sure I, I liken it to making sure you cannot be hit as much as you possibly can, that you literally cannot be reached. And that means, following a car through an intersection closely, hiding in their, in their, in their shade, whatever it takes to get, never, never hope the driver won't hit you. Just never be there when they make the mistake. And, and don't think you're on a racetrack. I mean, just because on Sunday yes. you, you want to, you know, rear a race, it, it doesn't matter on the street. You, you're going to ride the way you need to ride on the street that has no bearings on your track riding. Not at all. If you think about it, riders, the person who goes the fastest in the canyons 
could very well be the person who cares the least. If you do not care what's around the corner, you don't care what's over the rise, you don't, you just do not care, you, you can drag your knee on the street. But there's a very famous 250 national champion killed on the street in San Diego riding too fast. And if any of you are with a group that wants to drag their knee on the street, you're going to meet that group's family in the hospital or the morgue, guaranteed. You just cannot ride at the limit. And you don't have to listen to me. I, I'm some old guy preaching to you. You don't know who I am. Who's this old guy? But I'll tell you what, if you leave that safety margin on the street, ride with your friends, not against your friends, and come to the racetrack for 250 bucks, you can get on the racetrack and let it all go. And you'll see what speed is all about. And I think every one of us, once we started at the racetrack, we realized, wow, the street is to ride with my friends to lunch together and have the time of our lives on bikes with that margin. In other words, 30% margin in the amount of RPM you use and throttle, 30% margin in the much, an amount of brake use that's still left over, and most importantly, 30% margin in lean angle, that you have, a, you have that ability to lean the bike in further safely on tires because you're not screaming into the corner at the limit. And you can listen to this and, and do it uh, and have the time of your lives or just go ahead and keep trying to drag your knee on the street and be hurt badly. Hundred percent. Uh, I have I have a very I have a very short uh, question now that has a very long answer. Uh, I'm, I'm conscious of the time, but you know not too much. Uh, I heard your your partner Ken Hill, right? Ken Hill. Yeah. Um, have have a, he has a, his own podcast uh, that, that yeah. I listen to. A very very good podcast. I suggest everybody go go and listen to that podcast as well. Uh, he was talking about his, his top 10 favorite motorcycles. Do you, do you have a top 10? <laughs> Man. Well, uh, Judy, my wife accuses me of loving every motorcycle I've ever ridden. And I do. I mean, they're, they're so good. It's almost, it's, it's hard to find a bad motorcycle these days. Um, I'm not a fan of the cruisers. I'm not a fan of a bike that won't lean over significantly. I, I don't want to be limited by the bike. And I don't want to run down into a downhill corner I've never seen before and not have lean angle to make it. And, I don't know what that lean angle, lean angle number is, but I, I'd like to bike that leans over to 50 degrees, I think, fair to say, just in case I'm in too fast. So that puts the cruisers toward the back of my list. But if, if, and if you buy a cruiser, be aware of that and, and stuff like that. But I'm just not a huge fan of the riding position. Uh, but among my favorites, uh, top 10, you know, I was, I was extremely blessed back in the day. I've ridden MotoGP bikes. I rode Alex Barros's MotoGP bike. Um, I've ridden Grand Prix bikes, Eddie Lawson's 500, Wayne Rainey's 500, uh, Mick Doohan's 500 at Suzuka, you know, Matt Maladin's 1000 or Maladin's 750 Superbike. I rode Rich Oliver's. I rode all the number one bikes, Super Sport 750 Super, you know what I mean? Yep. So I've been on some really amazing bikes, but probably outstanding to me um, was uh, Kenny Robert Jr.'s 500 at Suzuka, at uh, Phillip Island. He, run the, he won the championship in 2000, and in 2000, I was younger and uh, I was racing and I was pretty tuned up and I was pretty after it, trying pretty hard. And I remember training to go to Phillip Island to ride his 500. And I, I showed up there to, to not ride around like a journalist and go, oh gosh, it's so neat. I, I went there to try to really ride the bike um, to the best of my abilities, which were, you know, quite a bit slower than, than uh, Junior rode it. But that would probably be right up there, right up there with my favorite bike. No nannies in 2000, the thing just incredible. And before I got on the bike, I was told by Warren Willing, the crew chief, he said, Nick, don't think you're not doing a great job just because you're not using a lot of throttle. And that is such a good thing 
to hear for people who run on these thousands. And that bill, that's a good thing to remember when you get your thousand back. Uh, it's such a good thing to remember that that little bits of throttle on those bikes make big differences. So that was really good. So 500. And then I got to ride the Britain and race the Britain. Jim Hunter had a Britain and uh, he let me ride it at Daytona uh, for, just for some parade laps. And then he let me race it. And I did well on it. Uh, in fact, I was leading the unlimited whatever CCS deal. Arion Racing was there, Dutchman, all those people were there. I was leading all those people, Barney and all those guys, on the Britain. And then the steering stabilizer broke loose and locked on the pipe and locked my steering. And I fell over in the chicane. Oof. But until then, I was beating all those people. That's what we done Britain. And so, then this, this Spondon TZ750 I've ridden and raced. That's a big thing. TZ250 is up in there. Um, the, the picture yeah, that I saw in Daytona, the picture that I saw in Daytona, you were leading the Britain. You were on a Bimota Tessie. Yeah. Yep. Bimota Tessie. Yeah. But Andrew Stroud was on the Britain and he was just playing with me. So he uh, he was really fast on the Britain. And I had the Tessie and we had the two best bikes in the class. So we jumped out to the lead and he kind of just rode around with me, I felt. And then he won the race. But yeah, that was a, a Tessie that was built for me. It was pretty cool. So there's but as, as I think about stuff, I mean, my buddy Brian Smith has built a, uh, a really badass uh, Paul Smart replica that he's won in Arma. That's been a neat bike for me. So, you know, it's it's a long list. Let's just say that. <laughs> and someday I probably should write down some of those ideas because it, it's been a very blessed life, the things I got to ride. Because back in the day, man, they would let journalists show up and ride the stuff. And I took full advantage of that. I was very, very lucky. Yeah. I, I think I think uh well we have, this is this is a long episode. Uh do you have do you have any more questions, Nabil? I, I think we've tapped out. We've been very generous with your time, Nick. Thank you. Yeah. Well, break it up into two pieces or edit all the all the bull crap I said out of there and make it shorter, but um <laughs> it, it means a lot to me too, because you know, we're gonna post this on our site as well. And it, if you think about the way the sport has to be, the sport has to be individual. You can't really yell out a couple of little riding techniques and hope it works because if it's not in context, it's tough. And and that's why these longer podcasts sometimes have to be, if, if you don't, if you don't understand that the tire has to be loaded before you brake or accelerate or even steering has to be gent initially gentle to, to, to load the tire. If you don't understand that, you'll never realize why people could trail brake, right? You, you would never think that you would never, realize why people can get mid corner and pick up brake pressure because you don't realize how smoothly the initial has to be. And so we, we say initial brakes or throttle have to be for weight transfer only. And if you just think about my initial brake initiation will be to transfer weight forward, the initial probably like, but if you never hear those ideas, then trail braking sounds crazy and braking mid corner sounds crazy. And some of these new rider schools, when we say, Hey, we need to teach trail braking, they'll say, Oh gosh, you're, you're crazy. Um, we can't, we can't fit that into our curriculum. We're saying we got to start the curriculum differently. We got to we got to evolve the curriculum to start so that trail braking can be automatically understood through tire loading, 100% of grip, 100 points of grip, radius equals miles an hour, mile an hour uh, dropping, radius tightening. All those things have to be in there. And if if we can't put it in context, if we try to do a, a three minute Nick Ionach tip, somebody would write in and go, "He's crazy." When I grab the brakes at lean angle, I fall down. Well, you use the wrong verb. You use grab. So to put it all in context means a little bit and, you know, tighten it up and break it into two. I, I bet nobody's listening at this point. It's, it's about an hour and <laughs> almost two hours into it. They're, so everybody's all, they're, they're listening, but they're listening. But if, if this episode is, is out on a Monday, th this is probably Wednesday. 
Yeah, know? right. Because right. they already got home, got <laughs> got to work. Yeah. Uh, but but but, uh, but but listening listening to it is one thing, and experiencing it and learning it correctly with with the instructor that is is actually talking to you right now is is a different story. So they do need to come to your school, and they do need to experience that 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 theory, right? Because you're talking, it's a theory. It's like them, you know. Right now, it's it's like them writing reading a book, right? I mean, we're 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 pretty much book on tape for them right now, uh, but but you still need to experience that theory, and you still need to um, make it body memory. Otherwise, it, it's never going to work. Yep, and that's why we film everybody at our school each day because once you see yourself in film, and we get a chance to work through the film with you, it is it's really different. And that gets back to that individual coaching. You know, you, you, you're hearing these things and they, they will help you. And you know, you, you, even you two are putting them into play. Like, okay, I can see turn two, da, da, da. but when you get coached by someone you trust, that's what really matters. And that's, that's a big part of our school. And there's a, there was an article done, uh, just, just came out on uh, Leah edit. And the author said that it's a bunch of Tony Robbins type of uh, communicators speaking to you. And that, I, I took that as quite a compliment. In other words, the kids that are going to ki- teach you, and, and I mean kids, there's some 22-year-olds. Uh, I think Chris Paris is our older instructor besides me and Mark Schellinger. Uh, Nick Mathurin's a little bit older, but Chris is only 37. So it's a bunch of young people, but they are truly into this. I mean, they really understand that if they can help you ride better, you will not just grow the motorcycle industry, but you'll talk about the school and get people there. And we're sold out. I mean, we're, we're sold out with waiting lists, which is, is a wonderful place to be. Uh, because of the instructors. And so, uh, you know, and we've got a set of core instructors, Isaiah Davis, Michael Haynow, Kyle Wyman, Cody Wyman, uh, Ryan Burke, Chris Paris, Nick Einach, um, Nick Mathurin now. It, those guys will be there, and they are really, really focused on helping you ride better because you have to have an individual. It has to be, it has to be hey, yeah. right here, your head drops too late. That's why your bike's running wide. And, and it, that's what the school does. But I, I know we didn't, we didn't, this is not a sales pitch, right? This is not a sales pitch. This is like, if we, if we who understand this sport, if we don't speak up and push on people to improve, it won't. Right. And, uh, it's not, it's not a huge revolution. It's an evolution. We need to evolve into these ideas because the bike is designed not by a beginning rider, but by an expert rider. So if you'll realize that the bike is designed by an expert rider. So the expert rider's inputs have to be taught immediately or the bike will not work as designed. So now the bike runs wide because the rider's been taught to get off the brakes before they steer. The bike's not designed for that. It's not designed to steer in the corner with the fork rebounding and the contact patch getting smaller. So if if we can all just be open-minded and decide, you know what, it's time to evolve. Let's tweak on this. Let's keep messing with it. We could have it done and uh, it'd be a whole new world in America if we can uh, push all coaches and instructors toward these ideas. And Everybody, they are not Nick Ionach's ideas. I can explain them. I can do them, at a, at, but it is the way the bike's designed to be ridden. And for, for proof on that, pick up Kenny Roberts' book. It was probably written in the mid-'80s, 84, 85, I don't know. And Kenny Roberts said, if you let go of the brakes before the bike, if you let go of the brakes before the corner, the bike, how did he put it? The bike lifts up and wants to run wide. In other words, you let go of the brakes, the fork rebounds, the fork rebounds, the bike raises and runs wide. It was written with a British author, so the wording was a little bit weird. But in other words, Kenny Barbers was saying back in the mid-80s, everybody leave the brake on past the tip in because the bike's designed to steer that way. So 
those are the way I want to push it because it's easy to throw stones and say, hey, you guys are all doing something wrong. We've got to get it right. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the majority of what's being taught to new adders is very good. We just need to tweak that 5% because as we go quicker and quicker, that 5% gets larger and larger. Yeah, true, true words. Absolutely. Well, great. I think we should do another one just on street riding because we've, <laughs> we've covered kind of the advanced level, but there's so much to talk about with, with like defensive riding on the street, which you've touched upon a little bit, Nick, that also I've done some, some readings and, and courses about it, and there's tons of things people can do on the street to be safe too. You're lacking so, a bill. Uh, but you're, that, that's, you're, you're lacking a bill to, to still live in the valley because here in Vegas, uh, first of all, there's no filtering law, so you have to... Uh, ride like a car, uh, which makes no sense, uh, and it's yeah. also and it's also super hot. So I do take my truck out to work, not a motorcycle. Uh, but yeah. but it, it's I mean I, I lived in the valley for twenty years, and yeah, I did I did ride on the street. Uh, I commuted on the four hundred five, uh, and it was it was fun because it took it took an hour out of my commuting. And, and we, I lived in the San Fernando Valley and then La Crescenta and commuted into Hollywood every day. And, you know, I had, I had a boss named Art Friedman. If you remember Art Friedman, uh, you know, road racer as well. But he was such a he was such a traffic survivalist. He really taught us all, got us all thinking about traffic survival. And in the 11 years I was at the magazines, I think we only had one traffic accident, one one accident where a car and a bike, one of our bikes got together and there were six of us riding every day into work. Uh, so there, there's a huge story there. I'd love to participate if I could. Um, and I know we'll wrap this up, but I wanted to tell you, you know, you two, thanks for doing this. And you're, you're coming from a enthusiastic viewpoint and that that's what really changes things. When you, when you are an enthusiast, when you truly love riding, you truly want to grow the sport. You want to never crash again, yet you want to run a good pace. You want to get to, to breakfast with the lead group, having the time of your lives with a 30% margin. When those are your, when those what push you, it changes everything. If, if you're running a school to get, to get students through as quick as you can to sell bikes or running a school and packing as many students as you can to make money, that's when things go sideways, and that's what I see. When, when you are saying, you know what, I, I want this sport to get better. This is my passion and my love, and I'm going to put on a podcast or run a school, whatever you're going to do, that's what changes things. So I really appreciate you two coming from that viewpoint. We appreciate you coming, coming on. I mean, we're, we're just – Two, two amateurs, they're just fans of the sport. And we, we, ask, we ask people that we want to talk to to come on the podcast because we truly want to talk to them. Uh, so we're not going to have anybody on the podcast that we don't think is going to, you know, we don't personally don't, don't want to talk to them or, or we don't think they're going to bring any value, right? So everybody that, that's here, I, I think we, we're trying to leave something behind. And, and, I, and I, think, I think what you left us and everybody that's listening um, today is, is just, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable information. So thank you. Well, yeah, well, thank you. That's nice of you to say it's, it's quite co good company. I mean, Josh Hayes and those guys are, they're my heroes too. And, and, uh, I think that's a, that's a big thing. And I tell you what, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've asked people like Josh Hayes, uh, Chris Paris, uh, you know, Freddie Spencer, I, I always say is what you're doing, what we're teaching. Uh, and that is, that is such a big thing. And the thought with that, for everybody who says, oh, gosh, these guys, Nick's talking about racing. Everybody, the only measurable, the only measurable part of our sport is racing. It's got lap times. 
finishing positions, number of crashes, championship points. It's the only measurable thing. And does the motorcycle know if it's on a racetrack, a back road, or a parking lot? It has no idea. Do the tires know? They have no idea. So good riding works on the racetrack, and it'll make you an incredible street rider. Bad riding hurts on the racetrack. You lose points, lose championship, hurt yourself, and will kill you on the street. So this is that, that's the push with this. We've got to go back to the racetrack because if, if you say, oh, my uncle, he taught me to use just the rear brake, and my uncle's been riding for 40 years. Well, your uncle only rides on 75-degree days or warmer. He rides six miles down to the cafe on roads he knows, and he's had his bike for 12 years. Well, yeah, he can just use the rear brake because – there's no, there's no measurable changes in what he does. So that's why the racetrack comes into play. And that's a big part of it because people will say, oh, these guys are teaching trail braking because it's a racetrack technique. Everybody, the bike doesn't know if it's, if it's turn five at Elkhart Lake, downhill, second gear, or, turn, or your favorite um, canyon left-hand corner. The bike doesn't know it works or it doesn't work based on the best techniques. And that's all we're chasing. That's an excellent point. All right. Th thank you guys for thank listening you. to the podcast. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thank you, Nabil. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we certainly need an episode two. I have, I have so many more questions uh, about your life and about all your experiences and all, all the races you won. Yeah. Uh, questions we, we, didn't, we didn't get to. Uh, but Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like... I think people tune in to be helped. And I, I do, I think that, and it's uh, it's why we get down to business at our school. We start in the parking lot. We start with a tire. We start with a bike and we get right to it because and I think at some point you're like, okay, blah, blah, blah. What do I got to do? And that's the way I feel about it. And, um, you know, talking about yourself, of course, is my favorite subject, but <laughs> I think in these cases we need to get to it. And, and uh, so thanks for letting me. It's also, about yeah, it's also the human story, right? So people want to know who's, who's teaching them. Right. Mm -hmm. And and yeah. now they know. Yep. All right. Thank you, everybody. Let's let's finish the finish the episode now. And uh, it's a long episode, but uh, I hope you're still listening, which I'm sure you are. Uh, so thank you, everybody, and good night. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>